Welcome to episode 10 of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shroud. Our guests today are Mike Jesiorski, Tucker Warner, and Jack Russo. So remember that order, it's arbitrary, but it'll be consistent throughout the game, Mike, Tucker, Jack. And so in that order right now, could you each just briefly state where you're Skyping from and one sentence or so about yourself? Uh, hello, I'm Mike Jesiorski, originally from Chicago, but I'm an American living in Mexico. I live in Querétaro, Mexico, and I work at the National University of Mexico, specializing in research in molecular biology and bioinformatics. Tucker? Hey, my name's Tucker. I am Skyping in from my apartment in Brooklyn. I'm kind of a newcomer, I guess, to the world of serious quizzing, although I'm liking it a lot so far. I'm definitely a bit of a specialist, so I'm hoping that the categories fall my way in this episode. Hi, right, Jack? Uh, hi, my name is Jack Russo. I'm originally from Moorhead, Minnesota, but I'm out here in San Jose, California, and I'm a criminalist in the Santa Clara County Crime Laboratory. Ooh, nice. All right, so this game is in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. The first round I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. So these questions will not be drawn from any one specialist area. The categories are more or less arbitrary, and they'll mostly serve as a warm-up, but they will be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers if those are needed at the end of the game. And for this round only, you will each enter as individuals. So if the first person the question is directed at misses, it'll go to the second. And then if the second misses, it'll go to the third. So that's why I specified that order. And we'll rotate. So each of you gets to answer three questions in this round in first position, three in second position, and three in third position. And the rules will change after this round, but I will explain those rules when that happens. And just again, a reminder, because this is a podcast, to kind of talk through your thinking process. Don't internalize your thinking. You know, share any interesting connections you have with the questions or the answers, but don't just talk to fill up time. Everyone ready? Yep. Yes. Yeah. All right, so we'll start with question one directed at Mike in first position. And again, these questions can be kind of long and it's okay to take notes on a piece of paper or something if you want to be able to follow along. And as I said in my thing, when the question isn't directed at you, still listen to it so that I don't have to keep repeating it every time it goes to a new person. Mm -hmm. All right, Jake Cannavale, recently seen as in over his head aspiring bounty hunter Toro Calican in an episode of The Mandalorian, is a direct descendant of three well-known show business figures within the past three generations. Now, that's not all that uncommon. What's more unique is that each of those show business figures is primarily identified with a different American ethnicity. So his multiple Emmy-winning father, Bobby Cannavale, is Hispanic-American of Cuban descent. His grandfather on his mother's side, Sidney Lumet, one of my favorite directors, was notably Jewish-American and even grew up performing in Yiddish theater. And his great-grandmother on his mother's mother's side is what renowned African-American singer, actress, and civil rights activist? Okay. Well, it's a very interesting fact about Sidney Lumet. And so I'm looking for an African-American singer, actress, and activist. Yes. Um, and that's a particular combination. In fact, my mind immediately goes to Harry Belafonte, and there's only one thing wrong with that answer. So um, I'm trying to come up specifically with the activist. I'm, I'm trying to angle in on the activist aspect of it. Could you repeat what the relationship is to Jake Cannavale, please? Yeah, so we're looking for his great-grandmother, specifically his Great-grandmother. Yeah, specifically his mother's mother's mother. Okay, so a singer, actress, and we're going back three generations, and so I'm going to take a stab and say Dorothy Dandridge. That's a, a very good guess, but not correct. So this will go now to Tucker, second in the order. 
Okay, so I'm trying to puzzle this one out, and unfortunately every name I'm coming up with is, you know, maybe two of the clues are correct, but the third one doesn't quite fit. The other difficult part is finding someone who I think might be older than Sidney Lumet, and that's kind of dating this a little bit to the areas that I'm not so strong in. So in lieu of a better guess here, I'm going to take a swing at a lucky last name and say Davis. All right, I see that strategy. Um, It could potentially pay off, but in this case it doesn't, so I will send it to Jack. Yeah, similarly, I remember seeing Jake in that episode of The Mandalorian. I was like, oh yeah, that's Bobby Cannavale's kid. I had no idea the Sidney Lumet was involved. And right before Mike said Dorothy Dandridge, I was combing my mind for the woman that uh, Halle Berry played in that movie think that she got Emmy nominated for and Mike uh, helpfully filled that in and answered it for me so at this point I have no clue so I'm gonna swing at another lucky last name and say Baker all right again all good guesses Jake Cannavale's mother is Jenny Lumet the screenwriter probably best known for Jonathan Demme's film Rachel Getting Married and the daughter of Sidney Lumet and Gail Lumet Buckley who is in turn the daughter of Lena Horn. Uh, uh, yeah. Very good. Okay. All right. So the next one, we'll start with Tucker in first position. So in a previous episode of this podcast, we had a question about Fun Home, the musical that earned Tony Awards and a Pulitzer nomination for the lyricist-composer team of Janine Tesori and Lisa Cron. So that same year, one of the other two Pulitzer finalists was a play written by Cron's wife, Madeline George. So here's the question. Madeline George was inspired to write that play, which is set in four different time periods and connects such historical and literary figures as Sherlock Holmes and Alexander Graham Bell after viewing a 2011 episode of what television show? Hmm. Okay, a lot to parse through here. Thankfully, connecting this to television is going to make this easier on me than had it stayed just in the realm of theater, so I appreciate that at the end. Um, Alexander Graham Bell... And this is where it gets a little difficult. I'm trying to think of a show that has like maybe more of a historical bend to it that would have aired episodes in, you said, 2011, correct? Yes. Okay. So I'm trying to think here. There's been more weird history television shows that popped up in the middle of this decade rather than the beginning of it. So I'm trying to think if maybe there was something just a little bit earlier, perhaps a show on Siffy or Sci-Fi Channel, that sort of bend. And I'm coming up just a little blank on an actual title here, unfortunately, but I'm going to come up with a good guess, too. So, oh. I think I might be taking this in the wrong direction, but I will say Penny Dreadful. All right. Again, I like how you think. That's a very legitimate guess, but not correct. So, Jack? Uh, a little digression. I think when Sci-Fi Channel changed its name to Sifi, it had trouble in like the Eastern Bloc because that's slang for like syphilis or gonorrhea or something of that <laughs> ilk. Um, But for this answer, I think given that there's historical figures, people jumping around, a lot of time periods, I'm going to go for the ultimate timey-wimey show and say Doctor Who. Good guess, but not correct. Mike? Okay, well, thanks guys for eliminating two choices. I'm still clueless, but at least I I have two things I'm not going to guess. I'm very, very weak on recent TV. Living in Mexico has handicapped me in some regard with that. So I'm just going to take a stab based on what Tucker was throwing darts around, and I'm going to say drunk history. Yeah, I I was wondering if someone (laughs) would guess that. That is... That is definitely the kind of thing that could prompt someone to think historically, certainly. But yeah, the key to this, I specifically mentioned Sherlock Holmes and Alexander Graham Bell. What 
kind of thinking laterally, what do those two figures have in common? They both were assisted by someone with the name Watson. Mm. And in Uh, 2011, if you're watching TV and there's a Watson who's drawing your attention, it's going to be on Jeopardy. Wow. Well, that does make sense. Uh. (laughs) Wow, that's a connection I wouldn't make. The play is called The Curious Case of the Watson Intelligence. (laughs) And you know I did see that episode, so I feel a bit silly now. (laughs) All right. So the next one, we'll start with Jack in first position. Again, kind of a long question. The 2018 film American Animals dramatizes a December 2004 incident in which four incredibly stupid young men bungled a heist of several valuable manuscripts from the rare book collection of what far from Eastern Europe University in Lexington, Kentucky. Per its Wikipedia page, this school has educated, quote, two U.S. vice presidents, two U.S. Supreme Court justices, 50 U.S. senators, 101 U.S. representatives, 36 U.S. governors, 34 U.S. ambassadors, and the one Confederate president. All right, so the school that Jefferson Davis went to in Tennessee. Kentucky. Kentucky, sorry. Um... I wonder if there's something with the American animals in there. And it was a 2004 trying to... And it has some connection to the Eastern block, you said? I did say that the university is far from Eastern Europe. Far from Eastern Europe. Yes, it is legitimate to wonder why I said that, yes. Yeah. Uh, So just trying to pick up on the individual hints and then do the thing that I always try to do to come up with obscure universities and think about March Madness. So March Madness school that has something related to Eastern Europe in its name. Hmm. Kind of blanking here. So name a university that I'm not even sure is in Kentucky and say Villanova. All right. Yeah, I believe that is not in Kentucky, but uh, I'll pass it to Mike. Okay, I'm also, so what we're looking for is a university in Lexington, Kentucky, and one that has been around for quite a while. I might be totally wrong about this, but I thought that University of Kentucky was in Lexington, so I'm just going to say that. Yeah, I'm not sure where University of Kentucky is, but yeah, that's, uh, again, a good guess, but not correct. So, Tucker? So, I do think Mike is right. I think uh, U of K is in Lexington, but I'm going to look basically solely at the far from Eastern Europe hint here. And I can never remember whether it's designated as a college or a university, but I'm pretty confident there is a division three school in the United States that's named Transylvania College or University. So I'll say Transylvania. All right. Let me uh, actually quickly check for the exact name. But yeah, it is Transylvania University. And that is the correct answer oh, nice nice work. i did not think i was gonna get that wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i I'm, I'm always amused by that a university with that name being in well kentucky of all places but um i generally know the alma maters of all of the american presidents but the the confederate one's a little more obscure <laughs> i suppose anywhere that goes across the woods can be transylvania yeah exactly just like anywhere that has woods owned by someone named penn is pennsylvania exactly yeah <laughs> All right, so Tucker first on the board, and we'll start the next question with Mike in first position. The 1964 graduating class of Cheltenham High School in Cheltenham Township, Pennsylvania, included both Reggie Jackson and what man who would later die in a 1976 commando raid in Africa? This man's younger brother, now a major world leader, graduated from Cheltenham three years after him. Okay, it is very strange that for some reason... 
Now, I don't know if it's a birth date. I just recently heard some kind of link of Reggie Jackson to somebody else who would not normally be linked to him. But after that point, I don't know where I'm going with this because a 1976 commando raid and uh, the fact that he's sibling of uh, somebody else, I'm having trouble even just figuring out what the context of this that is to say where the raid might have taken place this is well past munich uh um but of course we're looking for an american and an american who died in 1976 commando raid i'm blanking on what context that will be and so since this is a sibling of a world leader well um i will take a, a really foolish stab and say trudeau all right i see what you're thinking there but um good guess not correct tucker so uh Essentially, this question is asking what current world leader had an older brother who attended high school with Reggie Jackson and also perished in a commando raid in 1976. Uh, None of those hints are particularly helpful to me, especially as I'm struggling to think of a world leader born around that time a few years after who would have had some sort of tie to Pennsylvania. But I noticed you didn't say head of state necessarily. So I'll say someone who's relatively important in American politics right now. And I'll say Mattis. Oh, uh, you said Mattis, you said? Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, Okay. I see what you were thinking, but not correct. Jack? Yeah. Well, I was going to say Trudeau. Uh, and then Tucker brings up an interesting point. So the the end phrase of the question was world leader, not head of state. Well, I mean, yeah. So so head of state is a formal term. Not all world leaders are heads of state. For instance, Justin Trudeau is not the head of state of Canada. That's true. So world leader basically would mean like the leader of a, a nation state type entity. Okay. Um, so now I can eliminate all the heads of state that I know. <laughs> I didn't say it wasn't a head. <laughs> that's true, that's true. Um, but a current world leader that would have some connection to America? Um, I think, sorry, I think like the Castros have somewhat of a connection to America, but I could be remembering that wrong. I'll just say Castro. All right, so I will, I will make the first baseball reference in a game that's going to have many baseball references. Uh, <laughs> And say that, yeah, I'm not sure that, like, there's much of a connection between Castro and America, aside from the longstanding urban legend that Fidel Castro earned a tryout with a, a Major League Baseball team. But I saw that picture online. That proves it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But in this case, the 1976 commando raid in Africa, yeah, it's uh, maybe fading a little bit from memory. Certainly, I think a few decades ago, that would immediately, people would have connected that with the raid at Entebbe in Uganda, Mm -hmm. and that was, of course, carried out by commandos from Israel. The only Uh, fatality uh, among them was Yonatan Netanyahu, the older brother of Benjamin Netanyahu. Yeah. And, you know, while I think it was Tucker was thinking out loud, the penny dropped for me, I thought I shouldn't have been thinking about an American. Well, at least not somebody associated with America. Right, exactly. Yeah, just because someone graduated from high school in the U.S. doesn't mean that their primary residence was the U.S. All right, so next one we'll start with Tucker, I believe, in first position. So, a certain minor TV actress whose most visible role was as Missy Baxter on the 1960s sitcom Hazel is today remembered more for co-creating One Day at a Time and being in real life the mother of Meredith Baxter or Meredith Baxter Bernie. But perhaps her biggest legacy is that which extremely popular singer was named after her? Ooh. 
That's a good one. Okay. So an extremely popular singer named after that TV actress. Who are extremely popular singers who might have unique names, let's say? Uh, if it was named for a celebrity in particular, that makes me think that it's not exactly a common name. Most people named James, for example, aren't named after celebrities. So let's think who this could have been. Named after a 60s TV actress. Might have been born a certain time. Um, I'll use... Hmm. No, I, I had one answer on the tip of my tongue, and I'm thinking better of it now just to give myself a double check. Because um, I'm having trouble placing the actress in particular here. But um, I'll take a stab, say that her name might have been Stephanie, and we'll go with Lady Gaga. All right. I mean, I see where your logic is, although I think, you know, having said that this person was most visibly, well, I did say they were most visible as an actress in the 1960s, so that Lady Gaga might be a little young for that. But um, but regardless, uh, yeah, it's not the correct answer, so send it to Jack. All right. Given the time frame of a Missy who is a singer, uh, and I think the one I'm thinking of here fits the time period of being born around the 60s, uh, I will say Missy Misdemeanor Elliot. Uh, all right, I, I'm not sure when she was born, but yeah, I, I see your logic there. But uh, remember, I said that this person was named after the actress, not the character. Um, okay. So I will send this now to Mike. Okay, no, if, um, if I got the details of the question right, so uh, Missy Baxter was the um, the actress, child actress, and then mother of Meredith Baxter, Bernie, but most famous, or perhaps be, uh, uh, best connected with being the inspiration for a very popular singer who was named after her. Is so, that right? Well, so I never said child actress, but yeah, okay. I mean... Yeah, I mean, I'm being maybe slightly poetic in saying biggest legacy, but I do think that, I mean, certainly her other legacies had an impact on American pop culture, but I feel safe in saying that this particular singer had an even bigger impact on American pop culture, which is what I was getting at with that wording. Right. And did you give a time frame as to when this singer would have been born and named? No, but I did say that this actress was most visible on TV in the 1960s. So you can infer okay. from that. Yeah. Certainly. Okay, so uh, because I was going a different way, I actually thought that uh, because M Missy, uh, to me, is a diminutive of Melissa, and I thought that maybe Lizzo, whose given name is Melissa, would be the singer, but uh, Lizzo is 31 or 32, so born in the late, late 80s, that does not fit. So uh, trying to come up with, so could Missy be short for somebody, an extremely popular singer born in the 60s so likely came to stardom in the 80s so let's just um take a stab with madonna all right yeah that's a, that's a good guess although interestingly yeah her first name actually is madonna that is the name she was born with so i guess yeah with with tucker's logic of it being an unusual name but at the same time yeah i I feel like another actress named Madonna might, you know, stick out a little bit more. But yeah, no, that that was a perfectly defensible logic. Um, in this case, it's it's actually an odd coincidence that her husband, who was the father of Meredith Baxter, had the same surname as her character on Hazel. As far as I can tell, that's a complete coincidence. But her unmarried name was Whitney Blake, and mm -hmm. and an admirer of hers was the mother of Whitney Houston. Oh. Mm. Yes. Okay. Okay. Okay, so next questions we'll start with Jack. It's a mm -hmm. very very short question. The not quite as awesome as it sounds laser run is now a portion of which Olympic event? All right, a laser run. Uh so that 
being a laser, that implies it is straight and fast. And run tends to be used for winter Olympics with like downhill or bobsled or skeleton or luge. So I don't have any specific knowledge. I'm just giving my opponents possibilities to guess at this point. <laughs> um, but with laser run, I'm going to go ahead and say luge. All right. Good guess. Mike? Okay. Don't worry. You didn't help me that much. I decided to figure laser is either for measuring uh, between two points or it's for checking precision. I'm going to go with the second, and I'm going to guess that this has it's part of an equestrian event. Sorry, repeat that? I'm going to guess it's an equestrian event. So is that the answer you're locking in? Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah, I believe there's there's more than one equestrian event, but in this case, it's not any of them, so there's no point in asking you to be more specific. So I'll just uh, pass okay. it to, uh, pass it to Tucker. Uh, so you said event and not sport, right? Um. Yeah. I know there's a difference between, but I will basically the level of specificity is it's the thing someone would get a medal for. That's yeah, the level okay. I'm looking at. Gotcha. Okay. Um. So a laser run, I could be wrong but i don't think it's a specific phase of a particular competition i think that's more of perhaps like a qualifying run or a qualifying event that they would have as a preliminary round rather than part of the competition itself i don't know if my explanation is making sense but that's the way i'm thinking about it um but i do know that there is a special name given to the qualifying round in archery and given that Mike was onto something, I think, with the precision aspect earlier, my guess is going to be archery. All right. So, yeah, all three of you had good guesses. In this case, the lasers, they are, I think, used for precision, in particular the recognition in the past few years that using actual bullets in shooting competitions isn't going to be nearly as precise as uh. using laser pistols. But in this case, it being a laser run, it is in fact a combination of both shooting and running, but those are actually just two-fifths of the total event because uh. <laughs> this is now the laser run is the fourth stage. It is in fact a phase of a larger competition, the fourth one after the fencing and swimming and show jumping portions of the modern pentathlon. <laughs> Great question. Yeah. So now this is going to be the last phase of this round. So each person will get one more question in first position. So we'll start with Mike. We'll return to the Olympic theme for this one. Augie Sanchez did it in the run-up to the 1996 Summer Olympics. Serafim Todorov did it during the 1996 Summer Olympics. They are, to date, the only two men to ever do what? Okay. Um, Avi Sanchez in the run-up to the 1996 Olympics and Todorov in the 96 Olympics. Um, so I am inferring that Sanchez is most likely to come from a Latin American country, and Todorov sounds to me either Russian or Bulgarian or uh, somewhere else in Eastern Europe. And so if I'm trying to think of a type of an event in which both of those regions have had success, I think, of boxing. So I'm at a loss as to what a boxing competitor could do that would be unprecedented. There's also a possibility of wrestling, but simply for the sake of brevity and to get to the point, I'm going to say that they reached the final or won the championship, either qualifying or Olympic championship, without uh, surrendering a point. All right. Yeah. So, and are you specifying that in boxing or, or are you? Yeah, in boxing. So I'm saying bo boxers who, 
and, and, and I realize it doesn't make much sense because I'm, di- I'm not distinguishing between qualifying or getting a medal, but simply to, to move it along, I'm, I'm going to say that they reached the title of boxing without giving up a point. All right. Good guess. Not correct. So Tucker is next. Um, you said the names were Javi Sanchez and who was Augie. the second? Augie. A-U-G-I-E. Ah, Augie Sanchez. Okay. Yeah. And that was in the run-up to the Olympics and then Serafim Todorov, T-O-D-O-R-O-V, during the Olympics. Okay. Hmm. So the difficult part with asking a question about these two are the only two to do a specific thing is that the Olympics have had a long, long past and a lot of unique things have happened more than once, which kind of makes this difficult to answer. I'm trying to think of outside the box answers as well as do what Mike did and see if I can match these names to a sport. The name Augie Sanchez does sound familiar, but unfortunately I am having a tough time placing that within a certain competition. I'll say they are... I'll say they're the only two men who have ever been ejected from an Olympic basketball game. Oh, interesting uh, outside the box thought. Yeah, uh, yeah not, not correct. Uh, Jack? Uh, so Mike sent me down a line of thinking about boxing and what those two may have been involved with. But uh, it occurs to me that if Augie Sanchez is American and Femto Todorov is European, we may be in the gymnastics realm. So I'm going to say that these two men are the only ones to get perfect scores in a gymnastics event. All right. So uh, again, yeah, good guesses, everyone. Mike was after the right track quite early on, uh, zeroing in on boxing. But what I think, you know, all of you went wrong was you, you thought very narrowly about the Olympics. These events were connected to the Olympics, not because there was something special about the Olympics, but because that is an amateur competition. And as a result, it was not remembered compared to the many times this failed to happen in professional competition. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the specific thing that those two men did that no one was ever able to do in a professional competition was defeat Floyd Mayweather in the ring. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, Mike had me on the line that I was thinking it was a specific boxer, but the only one I could think of was Mike Tyson. And I do not believe Mike Tyson was participating in the 96 Olympics. <laughs> All right. So now we'll go to Tucker in first position for this. 1940s style icon Dorian Lee is sometimes dubbed the first supermodel, yet she was only the second most successful model in her own family. Her sister, who by the mid-50s had become the first model to earn an annual salary in the six figures, left an imprint on an entire generation of lads, including all four Beatles who jointly penned a song about and named for her that can be heard in the Oscar-winning concert documentary Let It Be. So... Name that sister an extremely highly paid model whose most memorable acting role was probably as the embodiment of the ideal female form in the Twilight Zone episode, Number 12 Looks Just Like You. Well, with, with all those clues hitting a lot of my interests, you'd think that that would pinpoint me to just knowing this answer off the bat. So I guess I'm just going to have to run through Beatles songs named after women and hope that I can come up with a supermodel who was in a Twilight Zone episode that I haven't seen. So it's, re- um, it's really it's a really short list, right? Beatles songs that are named after women. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, there's obviously no shortage of uh, potential guesses I could go for here. There's even a couple where it's a first name that I don't have a last name to pair to, which also makes this difficult. Certainly the uh, most famous supermodel of that era I can think of, who was also British and I guess could have potentially starred in uh, a Twilight Zone episode is probably not somebody who had a Beatles song named after her, but again, absent a guest that fits all of the categories, I'm going to say Twiggy. All right. Yeah, no, I uh, I follow your logic. And yeah, you know, sometimes you just have to guess if you don't know. All right, Jack. All right. So I'm hoping you can give me a little bit. Uh, I, ha- I, have, I have my guess here. Uh, I'm going to go with the Beatles woman subject who is, they suggest that you should see her. And she's so good looking, she looks like a man. So I'm going to say Polythene Pam is the song. Uh, so you said Lee before, so Pam Lee. Okay, yeah, not uh, not a bad guess, but uh, Mike? Okay, no, um, I'm, I'm also uh, lost here. Uh, I, I think, uh, um, I believe it was Tucker to, uh, for eliminating Twiggy, even though I associate Twiggy with the 60s and not the 50s. And uh, other people that I think of that could be models from that era pop up in films i don't know but the fact that yogesh said that this woman was probably most remembered for a twilight zone episode indicates that she didn't have much of an acting career um i'm kind of at sea here and again uh without a a really uh, strong guess in mind i'm just going to guess tuesday weld all right. Yeah, it's interesting. Kind of the sex symbols of the 60s, I think, have kind of endured due to the large amount of TV and from that era and, and movies like the James Bond movies that are still watched. The ones from the 50s yeah, aren't that well remembered. And in fact, I heard a lot of references to this woman in kind of older songs and TV shows, and I wasn't even sure if it was a real person until I looked into it. And the, the song about her, although it does carry her name, it's not on any of the Beatles' albums. It's, I think, only on the soundtrack of Let It Be, which was a documentary fairly late in their careers. And it's one of their few songs where the writing credits are not Lennon McCartney, but, you know, Lennon McCartney, Harrison Starr. It might be the only one, or one of the few, where the credits are given to all four jointly. But both the song and the woman are named Susie Parker. Huh, okay. All right. And now the last question of this round, we'll start with Jack in first position. I'll call back to the previous episode. It ended with a mention of Paladin of the Lost Hour, a 1985 episode of The Twilight Zone revival that won WGA Award for Harlan Ellison and was based on his Hugo-winning novelette. So that episode was essentially a two-hander between a young Glyn Turman, who subsequently went on to to many great award-winning roles, and what legendary movie star from Brooklyn, whose career dates back to 1930s vaudeville and who is primarily remembered for comedic roles. His last two on-screen performances before his 1987 death were that episode and an Emmy-nominated guest turn on The Cosby Show as a friendly neighborhood dentist. Let's see. All right. Big 1930s vaudeville. Stuck around until 87 and showed up on The Cosby Show from Brooklyn. I'm going to be honest. I'm just completely blanking here. How about we'll do the old Lucky Johnson? All right. Good guess. Mike? Okay. Um, Somebody who arose in 1930s uh, vaudeville, originally from Brooklyn, died in 1987. Last appearance was on The Cosby Show. I'm going to go with the African-American angle here, and I do not know the full name, or if I'm even saying the correct name, but I'm going to think of Jack Benny's foil, Rochester. All right, yeah. So, oh, wait, did Tucker get a chance to guess? Uh, 
Not yet, although it's it's not oh. going to be a strong guess. <laughs> okay, yeah, sorry, I was about to say something, but no, I'll just pass the question to Tucker. Uh, can you repeat the title of the Twilight Zone revival episode, please? Paladin of the Lost Hour. Got it. Okay, I believe I've... Yeah, I've either seen this episode or the one of the Cosby show, I'm pretty sure. Unfortunately, I don't have a picture of this actor in my mind, which is uh, obviously making this a bit difficult because that's a lot harder to narrow down. Vaudeville was a bit before my time, so I'm trying to think more, you know, comedic film roles, 70s, 80s of uh, an older man, perhaps. Um, And that's uh, (laughs) where it gets difficult. I'm sure once you say the name of the actor... I'm going to know it, and other than that, I'm not really having too many long-time old-school comedic actors coming to mind, and yeah, I guess I'm going to have to go for a, uh, a lucky Brooklyn last name. Let's go with Loja, um, perhaps related to Robert Loja. I don't know. <laughs> All right, yeah. So so as I was about to say in response to what Mike said, between you know Glenn Turman, who, was a, who, who, is, who is still a, a very um, prominent African-American actor, and, and Brooklyn and the Cosby Show, it may seem like there were clues pointing toward African-Americans, but of course, you know, Brooklyn has long been a very um, diverse area and, you know, in the early part of the 20th century had a very large Jewish population. In this particular case, this particular actor, yes, was uh, was not African-American. He was Jewish and starred in many funny movies, one of which actually was called The Kid from Brooklyn. His name was Danny Kay. Uh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Taps danced yeah. with Bing Crosby, according to Clark Griswold. <laughs> All right, so we end that round at Mike at 0.0, Tucker at 0.1, and Jack at 0.0. <laughs> Got a commanding lead, guys. <laughs> I don't know how we're. I don't know how we're gonna get. Uh, we're gonna surmount that lead. How many points what, does Sean what, what Connery is, have? <laughs> what, what is the opposite of laser run? I'd like to know. <laughs> So, so percentage-wise, it is an infinity percent lead. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now we will begin round one of the main game, the not-all-that-hard round. So I'll quickly run through the rules. In this round and all successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to your categories with a caveat not intended to be a fair comprehensive test of your knowledge of them, may relate directly or obliquely to them, and I won't reveal the categories at first, not until they become evident. You guys may find a bit of overlap among your categories. We'll see. In any event, before you can answer your specialist question, your opponent get to work together to try and steal the points from you. You'll only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. If I pass the question over to you without saying if your opponents missed, just answer as though they did, because otherwise there's no chance you'll get any points. And as in previous episodes, there are going to be a few bonus questions, occasional extra questions for people who get stolen from. So far, they haven't shifted the outcome of any game, but they give people who get stolen from a chance to show off knowledge, give listeners a few more questions to enjoy. The bonuses will be quasi-randomly sprinkled in, so they will not go with all questions. So sometimes you may get something stolen from you and there won't be a bonus. There's no real pattern to it. And the bonuses will relate to the original question. They won't always fit in the same category or be at the same level of difficulty. So these questions are not all that hard. They'll be worth two points as a steal, one as a specialist. And now and for the rest of the game, the points for a steal will go to both stealers, even if only one knows the answer. So everyone um, on the same page? Yep, sounds good. Yeah. All right. Sorry, I rushed that a little because we are a little behind schedule, but that's okay. We will begin the, this round with Tucker and Jack trying to steal from Mike. 
And here's your question. So it'll go first to Tucker and Jack, but everyone listen. Ferguson Jenkins, one of the dozen or so so-called black aces profiled in Mudcat Grant's book of that name, was until 2020 the only player in the Baseball Hall of Fame with a certain distinction. Now he is one of only two Hall of Fame players with that distinction or characteristic. What is it? Jack, I believe I know this one because one of the most recent Hall of Famers from this current season was Larry Walker, who was also born in Canada. And I know Ferguson Jenkins was too, so I think that should be our answer. Uh, Yeah, I can't think of any other Canadians that are in. Uh, I don't think Justin Morneau is going to get in my little hometown Minnesota Twins reference there. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, that answer seems perfectly fine to me. Yeah, um, so until Joey Votto gets in, we're going to say born in Canada. All right, yeah, I see we have um, multiple baseball lovers here today, so this will be... Oh, uh, that's good. Interesting. <laughs> so that is correct for two points for Tucker and Jack, and now the next question will go to Mike and Jack, collectively trying to steal from Tucker. Former Miss Universe Demi Lee Nell Peters recently tied the knot with which athlete, who also not long ago announced that he has accepted an invitation to represent the Philippines as a player in the qualifying tournament for the 2021 World Baseball Classic. Uh, yeah, so similarly this time, I think I know this one. I read a story about it. Mike, if you're willing to let me. Uh, so good old famous football player uh, Mike Tebow, or Tim Tebow is a little... He's a long shot to make the World Baseball Classic for the American team. So I believe he's using a distant relative from the Philippines to uh, join the Philippines team. So I believe it's Tim Tebow. All right. You're, you're locking in okay, Tim thank Tebow. Thank you because, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to uh, give my support because I did recently read a similar story and my thinking was, well, there's a person who's going to be famous for everything except playing baseball. So I couldn't think of the name. And I, when you said Tim Tebow, I said, yes, of course. So uh, I'll back your play here. We'll lock in Tim Tebow. All right, yeah. So Tim Tebow, the son of Christian missionaries, he was, in fact, born in the Philippines. Yeah, he was born there, yeah. Yeah, which is a connection he's using to play for them. So speaking of, of international representation, I'll give Tucker a tangential bonus question. Ooh. So not baseball-related, but... Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so we know that Tim Tebow will be representing the Philippines in the World Baseball Classic at the 2017 Miss Universe, where Demi Lee Tebow emerged with the Miss Universe crown, which country was she representing? That is a great question. Can you repeat her last name, please? Yes. Nell Peters. N-E-L hyphen P-E-T-E-R-S. Okay. Um, doesn't really necessarily narrow anything down. I guess Peters implies something of vaguely Anglican descent somewhere along the lines, but I don't believe Tim Tebow married anybody from um, the United Kingdom or that region. For some reason or another, and this could just be completely, totally wrong, but Panama is sticking in my mind on this, so I'll say Panama. All right, uh, I see your logic there, but actually I wonder if maybe the the last name might have been helpful, because Peters is definitely very kind of English-sounding. Nell seems to be associated with Dutch names, and one country that had both Dutch and English influences is South Africa. Yeah. Well, that is not something I knew before this. So. <laughs> All right. So two points to Mike and Jack for that steal. And next question will go to Tucker and Mike trying to steal from Jack. A song called Della's Moon Lullaby, performed by Paget Brewster in one of my favorite TV episodes of 2019, is based on a theme that initially appeared in what 1989 NES slash Game Boy video game? <laughs> 
Tucker? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that would have been a few years before my time. Um, can you repeat the name of the song? The song is called Della's Moon Lullaby. Della's Moon Lullaby. Okay. So let's see if I can think out loud here. Um, something you said, NES and Game Boy. So that does imply Nintendo. I'm not much of a gamer. Um, so trying to think it out here the pageant brewster hint although she's fantastic is unfortunately not helping since i have not seen this episode of tv mike for some reason on this maybe it's just the lullaby but i have a feeling this is going to come down to either kirby or the legend of zelda do you have any particular inclinations on this um i just want to commend jack on his wise choice of categories uh because <laughs> i think he's got two patsies here um any any gaming expertise i have has been simply through contact with teens in the house legend of zelda to me is i associate that with late 90s i don't know if it predates that and della's moon lullaby you said kirby also i'm not sure when kirby but i'm sorry yogesh you said 1989 game yes okay so we're going pretty far back and i really don't know i mean we're almost this is a few years after donkey kong and so donkey kong had mario as a character i don't know if there was an early mario game that would have been around in 1989 talker do you have any insight there what would you think would be the the sort of earliest in the mario series um, so definitely the first of the Marios was coming out around the mid-80s. I don't know the sequels particularly well, at least in this generation. If we get to Nintendo 64, I might have a little bit more skill with these. So there's definitely the potential that maybe it's Yoshi's Island 2. Again, that's not a game where I know when it came out, but that was either the NES or the Super Nintendo. I think it's around that time. Uh, it's just that I'm getting stuck on Della's, and I don't really know of a character named Della in video games, and that's what's throwing me off. So, um, if you want to take your best stab of those three, I think that you know this is as good of a guess as the two of us are going to come up with for this question. So, uh, I'll okay, leave it up of, to you. Of those three, you said Yoshi's Island two, and what else? Uh, let's go with the original Yoshi's Island, and I think probably the original Legend of Zelda and Kirby. Uh, hopefully, Yogesh wouldn't throw sequels at us for the first round of questions. And again, I don't know the sequels very well anyway. Okay, then I will take from your deck of free cards, I will take Yoshi's Island. We're locking that in. All right, locking that in. Jack? All right, so the I don't know specifically if Della is a reference to a character, but given your reference to it being an NES and a Game Boy game, the most popular game I can think of that came out on both of those and has a very distinct music to it is Tetris. So I'll say Tetris. So, so uh, yeah, none of you seem to really zero in on the word moon. I, I feel like within at least a certain generation of gamers, you know, the ones who kind of grew up on the 8-bit games in terms of 8-bit uh, music, maybe the most celebrated piece of music there is the moon theme from a, a game attached to a franchise that did come back in the past few years with a TV show and features Paget Brewster voicing a character named okay. Della Duck. It is, of course, DuckTales. Oh, yeah. Oh. Okay. Interesting. All right. So Tucker and Jack now trying to steal from Mike. 
There are many blotting methods used in molecular biology to transfer and visualize fragments of protein, DNA, or RNA, although nearly all common blotting methods appear to have compass-derived monikers. Which one is actually named after its discoverer? <laughs> well, guess who all just right. realized it's not going to be his episode, guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jack, what are your thoughts? Uh, so I'm a chemist. I didn't do too too much molecular biology things, and I don't have a distinct knowledge of compass-based blotting techniques, so we could just try to guess somebody who would be in there. So there's... There's like sta there's staining for bacteria, and the word that's most associated with that is gram. I don't think that's actually named after anybody, but I think that's the best I'm going to get to in the time period that we have. Gram sounds like a name. Let's go with it. So we'll say gram. Blocking gram. All right, Mike? Okay, so um, it was very kind of Yogesh to finally figure out where my wheelhouse is and borrow a, a card from that. So what Yogesh is referring to are the techniques of Southern blotting, Northern blotting, and Western blotting, the latter two being a play off of Southern blotting, which is DNA blotting. And I don't know the, the person's name, but I'm going to lock in Southern. Yeah, so the common ones are Northern, Western, and Southern. There are a few others like Southwestern that are maybe a little less common, but most of them, I think there's one called like the dot blot, which doesn't follow the pattern. Most of them are, are very compass-derived, so you'd think that they might have some actual relation to various directions, but they don't. Those are all back formations from the first major one developed by Edwin Southern, the Southern blot. Yes, and this is what passes for humor in the molecular biological world. <laughs> All right, and now Mike and Jack to steal from Tucker. So this is a, a format used in previous episodes I've called solve for X. All that means is that I've redacted a certain word or phrase, or in this case, a name, and replaced it with X within a quote. So it's your job to identify what the X represents. So uh, Mike and Jack trying to steal from Tucker. Which female celebrity's name have I redacted from this quote from a 1990 Chicago Tribune interview with Billy Corgan? Here's the quote. When I was little, my grandmother used to tell me that one of the biggest things that ever happened was when X rode through town on a train. My grandmother lived in the middle of nowhere, so that was a big deal. All right. So Billy Corgan gave that interview in 1990. We could probably guess we would go back maybe uh, 15 years or so to when he was a kid, 15 years plus. So we're talking about a famous female celebrity in the 1970s? No, I, I think what he's saying, so Billy Corgan, I think Billy Corgan is a, um, let's see, Smashing Pumpkins mm -hmm. debut album, I want to say was 89. So let's make him mid-20s. So let's make him born in 65. He's saying his grandmother, so let's go 40 years younger, we'll give or take. So we're going to 1925 when she was a girl, mm -hmm. um, a celebrity, somebody went through town. Yogesh, could you repeat the quote, please? Yeah. When I was little, my grandmother used to tell me that one of the biggest things that ever happened was when X rode through town on a train. My grandmother lived in the middle of nowhere, so that was a big deal. Okay. And did, you did, did you give a gender for X? I said female celebrity. Thank you. Okay. So my ballpark is saying late 20s, early 30s, at a time when you'd have large, big movie stars, and if they're going through town on the train, 
that would be kind of a big deal. I'm thinking silent era or early 30s. Yeah, uh, sure, Shirley uh, Temple like jumps to mind. That I think is a good possibility. I was going, I was angling more on the Mary Pickford side, but um, I think Shirley Temple would. Well, will would train travel? Hmm. Well, I'm I'm going through my head. I don't I don't have a lot of like Smashing Pumpkins knowledge, so okay. I'm guessing like the link here is that there may be a song uh, from the Smashing Pumpkins that may have a female celebrity. I kind of like uh, your Mary Pickford. Okay, well, I also don't know their discography aside from the hits, but they're from the Chicago area like I am, and um, so I'm supposed to know something about them. Well, I feel like Shirley Temple's may be a little bit later than what would have been trained celebrity era. I th- I'm thinking this is perhaps more silent era. So, yes, if you're okay with that, I would go with Mary Pickford. Let's do it. All right. Okay, we're locking that in. Okay. Attacker? Um, so I'm going with what I believe jack had said just a moment ago about one of their songs potentially being named after this person and i can't guarantee that this song was named after this person but i know that they did have one of their late 90s singles called ava adore so i'm gonna go with ava gardner all right so mike's logic was extremely sound if you're in the middle of nowhere who are the celebrities you'll be into are probably movie stars he narrowed it down to the silent era as well and he even mentioned at one point smashing pumpkins debut album Tucker, what was Smashing Pumpkins' debut album called? Oh, 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 yes. Oh, goodness. I'm blanking. I know 90s Pumpkins better. (laughs) Mike? Gish. Lillian Gish. Absolutely. Lillian Gish. I I never even knew what that title would mean. Oh, wow. Yeah, you had all of the pieces there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's... Yeah, often how it is on this podcast, you know, each of you have a piece of information that, you know, connects to it. But the question is, are you going to link it up? Not me. I had no information there. I was just. Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if that had been me and Mike stealing I... from Jack, I think we could have gotten that. <laughs> I, uh, returning to our baseball scene, that was a warning track fly ball. Yeah. <laughs> or we could just say we T-boat that one, guys. Oh. <laughs> All right. So now Tucker and Mike to steal from Jack. And this time we're going to play... This this episode will almost certainly not be finished before TriviaCon, but if you do go to TriviaCon, there will be an event I'll be running based on Only Connect. I've called some versions of it Yogesh Connect to personalize it. So this is going to be a Only Connect slash Yogesh Connect style sequence. I will give the first three parts, and it's your job to supply the fourth. So it's a round two? Yes, exactly. Okay. All right, I'll do my best uh, Victoria Corn Mitchell, which is not very good at all. <laughs> all right, so one, Hector. Two, Achilles. Three, Paris. What's number four? Hmm. I'm to say I don't know my mythology all that well. So this one might be one that we're going to have to talk out for a while, I think, Mike. Oh, oh I'm in on this? Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, aside from being names from Greek mythology, I... I'm going to have a hard time coming up with even an educated guess. So there's some sort of sequence here, and it was Hector, then Achilles, then Paris. So were these, like, (laughs) did they perhaps kill the other? Like someone, uh, Hector killed Achilles, who killed Paris, who killed somebody else? I mean, mean, that sounds good. So Achilles was famously killed by getting an arrow in the heel. Yeah. Do you remember who did that? (laughs) No, I don't. No, I know how he died. I just didn't see who did it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And, and, and some, well, actually I somehow I'm, I'm actually thinking Paris is a more familiar name from that. So I would 
if I were to flip the coin, I would say Paris killed Achilles. But I don't know that for sure. Uh, that seems to make sense. It could be the other direction, too. I think definitely in these stories, there was certainly a lot of killing. Um, and I think that that's a pretty good base for a potential sequence here. I know one of the other warriors in there was Ajax or Ajax, if you're a Dutch soccer fan. Right. So um, the only other name that's springing to mind right now is Agamemnon. And I believe that was a king who wasn't out on the battlefields as much. But I do know Ajax was a warrior who would have been in these stories. Do you have any better guesses? No, the only other guess I might have flailed with was Helen. But I think that that's just more of a novelty guess. I'll back your guess there. All right. Not normally uh, a great option to take, but thanks for the confidence. I guess we'll lock in Ajax. So just as a, as a formality, I have to point out that Ajax is not uniquely identifying among major figures in the Trojan War. Oh, so, no. <laughs> uh, could you, and I, I am not saying either way whether that is a correct answer, but can you make your guess more specific? I don't know if I can. <laughs> <laughs> so I did not know there was more than one, which tells you my knowledge level for this. Um, Mike, do you? I, I think we, we, we have a choice between Ajax 1 and Ajax 2, based on our level of knowledge <laughs> yeah. of this. Yeah, Ajax or Bjax. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Ajax pair or Ajax feast. Uh, so, uh, I mean, Yogesh, I think, I imagine if we saw Yogesh get a twinkle in his eye, making us guess the yeah. <laughs> uh, regnal number for Ajax, uh, when we're probably way off, the best I could say is Ajax the first. Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> All right, Jack? Uh, so I do believe their sequence is correct. Achilles famously killed Hector and dragged his body around Troy from a chariot. Uh, Paris is the famous archer, and he was the one who landed the lethal blow on Achilles. And then it even gets tricky for me remembering who did in Paris. Uh, if it makes you guys feel better, I couldn't differentiate between Ajaxes either. Ajaxes. <laughs> um, yeah, numerous Ajai. Um, so... I forget, because the end of the Iliad gets a little messy after the Trojan horse. Um, so I'll just go with a, a general answer and say Odysseus. All right, yeah. Odysseus generally um, let let uh, other people do the killing. He kind of stayed away from the... But, but um, yeah, he did... I think he was uh, one of the ones who went to the island, I believe it was Lemnos, when uh, a certain archer had been left there, I think due to a festering snake wound that was kind of stinking up the voyage, had been abandoned there, and I think it was Odysseus who went and essentially uh, convinced him to come and lend his archery skills to the Greeks toward the end of the war, and it was him who took out Paris. His name was Philoctetes. Mm. Oh, that was my second okay. guess. Yeah. Was that the first or the second? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, the Ajaxes were actually Ajax the Greater and Ajax the Lesser. Um, oh, oh. Imagine being the Lesser. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they weren't kings. They were just soldiers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. right. Okay. Yes, Ajax the Greater went mad and then uh, killed himself out of a sense of honor when he regained his sanity. And yeah, Ajax the Lesser was not an honorable person at all. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> then he deserved okay. the title. <laughs> 
All right, Tucker and Jack now to steal from Mike. The so-called Boston-Irish Mob War was touched off over Labor Day weekend in 1961 when a member of the Charlestown Mob made an ill-advised pass at the girlfriend of Alessandro Petricone Jr., an associate of the rival Winter Hill Gang. Things escalated, but even as the two gangs spent most of the 1960s violently at each other's throats, Petricone decamped to Hollywood and reinvented himself as a prolific character actor with a new stage name. Though he accumulated dozens of credits and even won an Emmy, his signature role remains portraying what fictitious gangster in a 1972 film. Okay, so 1972 gangster film would very likely be The Godfather, mm-hmm. and we don't necessarily have any shortage of you know, potential actors from that movie. Yeah. Uh, well, if, so from The Godfather, that reminds me, I believe the character of Luca Brazzi, I think he was an actual gangster. I think I remember that anecdote. And, you know, he's also the subject of the one of the most popular quotes of many from The Godfather is means Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes. Mm-hmm. So I feel pretty good about that as a guess, unless you have something else that you um, would want to throw in. To be clear, are we looking for the character or the actor's name, the stage name? The character. Okay, then, yeah, that's... That seems like an excellent guess. All of the other more minor characters in the Corleone organization, I think I can put to an actor other than Luca Brazzi. So I think that's a really strong guess. Yeah, so we'll go with Luca Brazzi. All right, locking in Luca Brazzi. All right, Mike? Uh, Yeah, I think the the other guys are on the right track. Since they've locked in Luca Brazzi, there's simply no reason for me to follow their footsteps. And so uh, I'm trying to think of... Oh, who would be a uh, another um, another character, minor character, more than likely, who could possibly fit? I mean, I mean, I I I, I really do, uh, you know, coincide with what they said. I think it is Luca Pazzi. And in the interest of, let's see, of uh, um, oh, now of course I'm blanking on the names. Uh, and so um, I'm trying to think of the some of the peripheral characters, uh, a name of a peripheral character. And I'm, of course, I'm pulling them all from Godfather 2, which was 1974, 1972. Rats. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not even going to come up with a good last name. I'm just having a block right here. And I'm fairly certain it's Luca Brasi. And I'm, I'm, I'm in the wrong movie. And But again, uh, I'm going to say Frank Pentangeli because I need to give a name. Yeah, yeah. Pantangeli is a character from Godfather 2, which came out in 1974. Luca Brasi is a character in The Godfather, but Alessandro Petricone, after coming to Hollywood, he converted to the Baha'i faith and he adopted the stage name of Alex Rocco. Oh, no uh, way. Winning, wow. winning yeah. yeah, he won an Emmy for Hugh Wilson's The Famous Teddy Z, but I think we all remember him getting shot in the eye playing the character of Mo Green. Mm-hmm. Of course. Well, that's that's foolish to overlook that. All right. Yeah, well, I I thought it was going to be a less famous actor than Alex Rocco. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting history. Uh, Yeah, it was recently uh, February 29th, which led me into a dive on people born on February 29th, which he he was one of, as was fellow um, mob-affiliated thespian Dennis Farina. Mm -hmm. Two legends. And that's a really nice link there, too, because, of course, in Get Shorty, you've got Alex Rocco reprising his... His Mo Green massage table posture with Dennis Farina yelling at him. And those, I guess those are two February 29th birthdays yelling at each other. Yeah. All right. So now Mike and Jack to steal from Tucker. Let's uh, let's go back to baseball. Seems uh, safer ground for all of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. The Dave Moore Award for the most important baseball book of the year was handed out by a Minnesota-based quarterly journal devoted to baseball published in the 1990s and early 2000s. That journal in turn took its name from the site in Hoboken, New Jersey, where Alexander Cartwright organized what is generally considered the first modern game of baseball. What is that site which sort of shares its name with one of the most famous streets in Europe? Um, so I don't have any direct knowledge, but if we go for famous streets in Europe, uh, there's the Champs-Élysées in France. Um, so if it's close to that, I don't know what we would throw in to make it Hoboken-ish. Mike, can you hear everything? Yes, I can. Okay. And you're working with Jack on this. Oh, I'm working with Jack. I'm sorry. I thought I was, I thought I was waiting. I I was waiting. Uh, Yes. Okay, so sorry, Jack. Yes, you're on the right track. And in fact, yes, I do, do know this. In fact, I uh, uh, I think I might receive this publication. Champs-Élysées is correct, and you're looking for Elysian Fields, which is the where the, oh, yeah. um, the Hoboken site. So if you're okay with that, we'll go with Elysian Fields. That sounds perfect to me, Mike. All right, looks like we're in the okay, we're in the, the, that in. All right, looks like we're in the uh, the part of Greek mythology you are familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that will be two points for Mike and Jack. All right, after a couple of dead questions, we're uh, back on the scoreboard. All right, so this one will now go to Tucker and Mike trying to steal from Jack. So before appearing in some of the worst horror films of all time, Bella Lugosi was in some of the best. So consider this exchange between Dr. Moreau, played by Charles Lawton, and the Sayer of the Law, portrayed by Bella Lugosi from 1932's Island of Lost Souls. So here's the exchange. What is the law? Not to eat meat, that is the law. What is the law? Not to go on all fours, that is the law. What is the law? Not to spill blood, that is the law. Now, if you're familiar with that film, which which is a classic, but maybe not that many people nowadays are familiar with it, but if you are, you'll realize that this was not a verbatim quote. In fact, I redacted from it eight times what ritualistic four-word query, which more famously appears in the title of a seminal 1978 New Wave album. I think I know this from the 78 New Wave album, because I can think of a four-word phrase that appears as a question. Ha ha ha, I, I yeah. know where you're going with this. Yeah, it, I think it might be, are we not men? And I haven't seen yeah. the movie in question, but that seems to fit with all the clues and definitely fits within the exchange. So if you don't have anything better, I feel pretty good about that. I, I, I yes, I, I was, I was trying to take the 78 album title angle as well and flipping through Elvis Costello and Talking Heads and you hit it. I, uh, are We Not Men? It seems like a very good answer. Okay, so uh, we are Devo and we are locking that in. All right. Um, so yeah, so so that is correct. And before ending out this round, I will give Jack a bonus. So uh, again, going off of Island of Lost Souls, a classic movie that's maybe not as well known today, but did leave a bit of a cultural imprint. So try not to jump around too much in horror as I read you this other dialogue exchange between Lawton and Lugosi's characters. Moreau, have you forgotten the blank, 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 Sarah of the Law? You... You made us in the blank, blank, blank. You made us things, not men, not beast, part man, part beast, things. What three-word phrase have I twice replaced with blanks? Um, yeah, I don't really uh, see an inroads here for me to get this. So I'll just say uh, another three-word phrase that gets chanted a lot in movies regarding this and say one of us. 
Yeah, so actually I was afraid of being scooped on this because in between the time that I, because I had about a week lead times, in between the time that I wrote the question and when we're actually recording this, uh, just a few days ago Jeopardy aired an episode where their final Jeopardy was about the novel this film was based on, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and it specifically mentioned this, but I was trying to give you another hint by including the phrase jump around. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you talk about um, jump around, and again we kind of find the thoughts of pop music, but jump around is of course a reminder that the house of pain is in effect. I should have I should have picked up on that. <laughs> yes, uh, another Moreau Drive influence on popular music. I didn't so, know Everlast was a classic film fan. I, right. I, I just want to compliment compliment Yogesh on his emoting in that reading that scene, and I believe that Ed Wood would like to speak to you about being in his next film. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't I didn't want to lean too heavily into the Lugosi thing because. Um, no one can really imitate. Uh, honestly, like the reading of that line is one of the most chilling things that Bela Lugosi did in his entire career. I didn't even want to try and, and imitate it because I knew I couldn't. <laughs> it. But I mean, I, I think it's worth remembering that long before his sojourn with Ed Wood, he was a massively talented actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, oh, yeah, certainly. It, yeah. Um, and then that, that in particular, that delivery is just one of the most effective line deliveries in all of horror cinema. Mm. All right, so we end the not-all-that-hard round with scores of Mike 7.0, Tucker 4.1, Jack 6.0. I hope that's correct. I'll, I'll go back and recheck everything, but I believe that's correct now. We'll move into the only somewhat hard round where the questions will now be a step up in difficulty and will be worth four points as a steal and three points as a specialist. And we'll begin with Tucker and Jack trying to steal from Mike. So following on from one of our three R's questions, Jonathan Netanyahu was named after one of his father's friends, the Irish-born British Army officer John Henry Patterson, who commanded the Jewish Legion during World War I and thence became an ardent Zionist. However, Patterson is better known for a 1907 memoir that he wrote detailing his adventures in Africa. That book has been adapted into several Hollywood films, including a 1952 movie that kicked off the 1950s-era 3D film Vogue, and an Oscar-winning 1996 movie that starred Val Kilmer as Patterson. So what specific activity, and I'm looking for a a certain level of specificity, what specific activity is Patterson's book about? Um, So from 1996 and thinking about, so the the Constant Gardener leaps to mind, but I don't think that was actually 96. No, that was... um... That was the next decade. I'm trying to get at it from the uh, 96 angle, too, because there couldn't have been that many Oscar-winning movies with Val Kilmer in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, 52, you know, African movies in the 1950s. Obviously, African Queen springs immediately to mind. I think that's the wrong oh. year, though. And ooh, did you have a thought? 1996. I don't know if it actually won an Oscar, but there's The Ghost in the Darkness, the lion hunting movie. And that's certainly something they would make multiple movies about. Yeah. It's a super interesting story, like um, him protecting the rail lines from the Mad Eating Lions. And 96, I think, is in the right area year-wise for Ghost in the Darkness. So I Mm -hmm. guess if the activity would be like lying or just hunting, if we wanted to be super like generic about it up front and then get more specific. Yeah. Yeah, uh, (laughs) I think you're definitely, if nothing else, like on the really like, I can't say that, like, oh, that can't be because of this. So I think that's a really strong guess there, too. <laughs> if we say hunting at first, uh, will you make us be more specific, Yogesh? <laughs> yes, I will. 
Okay. Um, so do you want to just go right ahead and say lion hunting then? I mean, we could say big game hunting, but I mean, it's very specific. I believe his book mm-hmm. and the, I mean, like the Ghost in the Darkness, the movie is entirely about him hunting lions. Uh, yeah. So we could just say lion hunting. Yeah, I, I think that's what we should lock in. Yeah. All right, we'll lock in lion hunting, Yogesh. All right, yeah. So, so the Ghost in the Darkness, it's Oscar was in a technical category, so not that well remembered, but it is an Oscar-winning movie, uh, legitimately. And the hunter played by Michael Douglas in that was fictional, but Val Kilmer was playing a historical figure, uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson, also the namesake of Benjamin Netanyahu's brother. The 1952 movie was called Buona Devil. And it was the first yeah. major uh, 3D feature film from Hollywood. All right. So uh, the bonus for Mike, speaking of Buona Devil, a picture of an audience staring slack-jawed at the screen while watching Buona Devil through 3D glasses. It was taken for Life magazine, but it famously adorns a cover of the U.S. edition of the Society of the Spectacle, a seminal 1967 text of the Situationist Movement authored by which French Marxist philosopher? Well, okay. So... People in a theater staring in 3D glasses, probably looking like they're in trances or, or uh, mouth open. So French Marxist philosopher, 1967. Um, I don't, I, I, I don't know who this is, but I'm going to take a stab and say Jean-Paul Sartre. All right, yeah, decent guess. Um, but yeah, this is the Society of the Spectacle is by far his most famous work. His name was Guy Debord. No, I didn't know that name. All right, yeah, like I said, sometimes the bonuses are going to be more obscure than the questions they're associated with. All right, sure. so so Mike and Jack now to steal from Tucker. So what man, who coincidentally was born on the day that Baron de Coubertin died, received the Olympic Order and was named Times Man of the Year for bringing the 1984 Summer Olympics to Los Angeles. He later served as Commissioner of Major League Baseball until being replaced by noted father of Paul A. Bartlett Giamatti in 1989, and he finished sixth in the 2003 recall election that made Arnold Schwarzenegger governor of California. Okay, so who am I working with here? Um, uh, me, Jack. Yes. Okay. I know this. Uh, do you also know it? Uh, no. So my knowledge of baseball commissioners starts with Kennesaw Mountain Landis, and then there's a big gap between that and the ones that were commissioners while I was alive. So I'll let you uh, take the answer. Okay. So, so yeah. So 1984 is Man of the Year for the uh, Los Angeles Olympics was Peter Uberoff. He later became baseball commissioner, and he was overseeing baseball when the labor wars occurred. Do I have that right? Do I have the timing right? Anyway, he was he took his, his principles to baseball and memorably did not have the same kind of success. So uh, I would go with Peter Ubrose. All right. Yeah. So um, un- unsurprisingly, that is correct. And Tucker, it seems Mike might get stolen from quite a bit here. I will uh, hopefully um, try and assuage that with a, a bonus. So speaking of A. Bartlett Giamatti, before replacing... Peter Uberov as Major League Baseball Commissioner. He was the president of the National League. And before that, he held what specific post currently occupied by erstwhile emotional intelligence researcher Peter Salovey? Giamatti's predecessor in this position, Kingman Brewster Jr., was also the progenitor of a noted Hollywood performer, as he was the grandfather of Fast and the Furious actress Jordana Brewster. If I remember right, I believe Bart Giamatti's background was in academia, and I, I might not have the exact title correct, but I believe he was, and I'm hoping that I'm not just completely wrong on this, obviously, but I think he was a dean or a chancellor at Yale University. So I, I'll say chancellor of Yale. So he was, in fact, the president of Yale University. <sighs> 
but I think uh, I'll, I'll just give that to you. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm with you, Yogesh. Yeah. That was very good. <laughs> sure. All right. Yeah. You you had you had a, you you displayed a level of knowledge that related to what the question was asking about. So I'm fine with giving that to you. Okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, and I'll consider it a gift. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Tucker and Mike now to steal from Jack. So Platonic Games, best known for creating Yuka Lele, a spiritual successor to the Banjo Kazooie franchise, is staffed almost entirely by former employees of what development studio founded in the 1980s by the Stamper Brothers. This studio first made their name in partnership with Nintendo with such well-done games as Donkey Kong Country, GoldenEye 007, Perfect Dark, and Conker's Bad Fur Day. Uh, well, Mike, the good news is I am aware of a lot of these games. <laughs> um... I'm trying to think. I could name a few studios off the top of my head. Some of these games I think I still have. I know I have GoldenEye somewhere around here and Donkey Kong Country. And definitely Banjo-Kazooie is a game I played once upon a time. But I'm trying to think of the logo on the Nintendo cartridge itself. And that's a little tougher. Do you have any insights for this question? No, we're, uh, we're going back to a former lifetime when I was stepfather to a son who played quite a bit of Conger's Bad Fur Day. And there was another game in there that uh, rang a bell. Uh, Always a a GoldenEye. But if you ask me to tell you what was the logo that came up when he restarted the game, I'm pretty well clueless. The best I'm probably going to do is when the answer is told, I'll say, oh, yeah, now I remember. So I would have difficulty even summoning a name of a studio. I'm thinking of EA Sports, which doesn't Mm -hmm. fit at all. I... No, I'm I'm if you have any sort of even dart to throw, feel free to throw it on my behalf. Okay. I do have darts. Um whether or not we'll hit a triple twenty or uh miss the board completely is another question. But um let's see. I can I can think of a few. None of them really seem right, but I'll say how does Activision sound? Activision sounds like the name of something that is in the same ballpark of what we're looking for, and so I give it my full endorsement. Let's lock it in. All right. Maybe soon we'll get back to questions about actual ballparks. But um <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jack? Uh, yeah, so the developer of all those games, uh, except for Ukulele, I believe the logo you're thinking of is a big old R. Yeah, that was my And most of those games got put together in a collection called the Rare Replay. So I believe oh. the answer is rare. Yeah, so I specified that they were well-done games. And of course, ironically, <laughs> they were made by Rare. Shoot, I was thinking about that. Great poll, Jack and Mike. This is not our category. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So next question, Tucker and Jack to steal from Mike. John Eager Howard, an early Maryland governor and U.S. senator who is the namesake of the county containing Elkett City and Columbia. Francis Scott Key, author of The Star-Spangled Banner. John Wesley Hunt, the Lexington, Kentucky-based businessman sometimes called the first millionaire west of the Alleghenies. What pioneering scientist and winner of the 1933 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine can claim genetic linkage to all three of those men since he was the great-grandson of each of them? All right, so 1933 Physiology Nobel Prize. Trying to think of what what breakthroughs were happening. Yeah, that's a good angle. I think it... 
think that's a little too early for like the discovery of DNA. Something like I want to, yeah. I, w- I want to be in the range of like Watson and Crick, but I think that's too early for them. Mm-hmm. And, and even... would this have been before the boom and transplant research started? It must have been. Uh... I'm yeah, to think of the big breakthroughs in medicine. I mean, like, so the first like heart transplant happened in the '80s, and they oh, did yeah. they did like yeah. kidneys <laughs> and other things. I think they did liver fairly early too. Um, so for physiology, it's not going to be like Rankin for his discovery of X-rays. That would have been early, and I don't think Rankin was in that era. I feel like we may just be flipping a coin on either Watson or Crick, and even then, we may not be in the right ballpark. Yeah, this is not anywhere close to my area of expertise here, so I'm afraid I'm not really a ton of help. Right now, Watson and Crick is a decent guess. I'm trying to think if there's any connection to Maryland since I grew up in Northern Virginia, and maybe there was some sort of you know like lasting geographical legacy in that area, but yeah, uh, I'm um, coming up blank for now. Yeah, like a city or a mountain or something in yeah, Maryland. Or, not, not that there would be many there. Yeah. Maybe a harbor somewhere. Uh, I, th- I think we're okay to flip a coin here on something we may not even know is 50-50, and I'm leaning towards Crick. That sounds perfectly fine for me. All right, Yogesh, we'll lock in Crick. All right, Mike? Okay, yeah, I, I, I'm i actually a little bit at sea here as well. So Watson and Crick do turn out to be too late. They published their uh, seminal paper in 1952, and 19- it was 1959 when they received the Nobel Prize. And I actually can't remember if they got it for physiology or medicine or for chemistry. Going back to 1933, and I feel like Yogesh was trying to throw a bit of a hint in there about genetic connection to three ancestors. All three are Americans, and... I have to admit that I am blanking on who would have won the Nobel in 1933, and I'm likely to miss my mark here. Uh, I was trying to think of who it was who established that DNA was the hereditary material, and I'm thinking of a name, Avery, uh, but I think that it's the 40s. I think I'm off on this, and I think I'm probably missing somebody who would have been an American, East uh, Maryland, Kentucky, are, are the hints or the indications we're giving, but but this is about a grandson, no clear indication that he would have lived in the same area. So without a better indication, I am going to say Avery. All right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you are you are right that the mention of genetic linkage was a direct clue. Basically, that was the time sort of a little bit after Mendel's early breakthroughs when they were rediscovered and there was more of a focus on the, the physiological mechanisms of transmission. And I actually, I mean, this person, I, like you said. I see. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I know where this is going. Yeah. I gave you one third of his name. I mentioned that one of his great grandfathers had the surname Hunt. And yeah, according to Wikipedia, is that the first Kentuckian to win a Nobel Prize. And the unit of genetic linkage is named after him. The unit is called the Centimorgan. And uh, his name was Thomas Hunt Morgan. Right. And I think for those of us who play Learned League, you are witness to the difference between taking five minutes and taking an hour, because as soon as you guys started to explain, I said, yes, of course. 
I just didn't take the time to really work it through. Yeah, and although Morgan is associated with the Drosophila melanogaster, the fruit flies malorganism, he actually was building off of a researcher whose name was William Castle, which uh, is, of course, more familiar to fans of bad movies as uh, the name of a different individual. But all right. So next one, we'll go to Mike and Jack trying to steal from Tucker. And to speak to Mike's point earlier, this podcast is not a showcase for my performing abilities. So I will not make any effort. I will not make any effort to reproduce the comedic rhythms of the line of dialogue that I'm about to speak. I will simply reproduce the words. Um, uh, If you're familiar with the original or if you seek it out, it is much more funny when performed by the original performer. All right. So here's the question. For Mike and Jack Transiel from Tucker, which sitcom character wrote the following fictitious letter? Dear Chase, I feel like I can call you Chase because you and me are so alike. I'd like to meet you one day. It would be great to have a catch. I know I can't throw as fast as you, but I think you'd be impressed with my speed. I love your hair. You run fast. Did you have a good relationship with your father? Me neither. These are all things we can talk about and more. I know you have no been getting my letters because I know you would write back if you did. I hope you write back this time and we can become good friends. I am sure our relationship would be a real home run. <laughs> All right, so uh, a sitcom character who is a big fan of a baseball player named Chase. Yeah, and writing in broken, well, I would say sort of preteen English. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, Yogesh, were you so, asking for the sitcom or the character? The character. Okay. Um, would also be a fan of the hair. Yeah, I can't, I don't have a lot of inroads in here. Somewhere like... Want to be on like Webster, maybe? So the, I, I think the the, um, the part of the quote was "have a catch." Is that I, did I hear that right? You guess you have a catch. Um, I believe yes, yes. I mean, have a catch is kind of a, an archaic or at least a, a dated usage. Uh, yeah, sorry, I maybe in a older. Well, I so this is a sitcom character. This is being played for a laugh. I'm wondering if the sitcom character is trying to imitate being a callow youth from the past or if this is actually in character for that sitcom it's kind of it's hard to um hard to tell what the context is well if we want to go old would be somewhere with like uh leave it to beaver maybe i can't think of any ball players from before 2000 named chase uh -hmm. so i don't think he's writing to a I can't think of a real person he would be writing to. There's nobody comes to mind. Um, yeah, so you don't really have a way to place it from that. Right. I mean, if you wanted to say Beaver Cleaver, I think that it would be as, as sound a guess as I could possibly come up with. Yeah, I think that's about as deep on this one as I could get. So we'll say uh, Beaver. All right, locking in Beaver? Yes. Okay, Tucker? Mm-hmm. I'm really not making any headway with this question. You'd think it would, again, like hit on multiple of my interests here, but it's not really coming up the same way. Hmm. So obviously you think baseball player sitcom, your mind goes right to Sam Malone, but this does not sound like anything close to what he would write. So that threw me off of cheers pretty quickly. It doesn't necessarily mean it's not a character from Cheers, though, perhaps writing to one of his teammates, making a guest appearance. And are you looking for the character? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to go along those lines, and I'm going to say Carla Tortelli. Interesting. Yeah, so you all kind of um, couldn't think of a a baseball player named Chase, which surprises me. I didn't think that uh, Chase Utley was that obscure. 
Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I knew of Chase Utley. I simply, I was biased toward the throwback language. And so I, I dismissed a recent sitcom, but just as well, because I don't know recent sitcoms. And I was thinking it was a fictional baseball player. And yeah. Yeah. So Chase Utley, of course, famously associated with which franchise? Uh, the Philadelphia Phillies. Philadelphia. Yeah, so, of course, the sitcom associated with that city. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. So it was one of, oh, okay. oh, was one of the gang. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the one who is an adult, but often displays the mind of a child, being uh, Ronald Mac McDonald. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Didn't see All that right. episode, but that checks out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Having a, a terrible. It, 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 you'll guess it always seems a lot easier after you explain the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Only I did that before asking the question one of these times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Between kind of the uh, having a terrible relationship with his father and the repressed homosexual subtext, I hoped all of those would point toward Mac. But all right. Tucker and Mike to steal from Jack now. After an evil demon used a boon to guarantee that the demon could not be killed during the day or night, inside or outside, on earth or in space, or by man or beast, the fourth avatar of Vishnu, Narasimha, was born in order to kill the demon at twilight on a threshold in midair using fingernails. So now, as a half-man, half-lion, Narasimha represents an evolutionary turning point in Vishnu's line of avatars. The five that were born to date after Narasimha were all fully human, but the three that were born before Narasimha were three different kinds of animals. Name any one of those types of animals. I Go feel ahead. like that line from Good Burger where <laughs> Kel Mitchell just says, I know some of those words. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mike, I have a very, very weak guess, so if you wanted to... You know, go for your thoughts first, then I'd be happy to go off of that. I, I mean, I and you even knew the good word burger line, which I did not know, but I, I, I concur with you there. I best I can do is we're in India uh, mm-hmm. or the Indian subcontinent, and the animal that comes to mind most quickly in India is the tiger, and that seems kind of obvious, but obvious is all I can clutch for at the moment. So if you have a weak guess, I'd like to hear it. Yeah, so I did take a religion 101 class my first semester of college that I barely remember, but I do remember some iconography of an elephant in Hindu mythology, and that's the weak guess that I came up with. Again, kind of pretty obvious animal, I suppose, but we're down to one out of the two fairly obvious ones that we've both said now. So which one do you feel stronger about? I, simply because if elephant turns out to be right, and we didn't say it, I'll be upset with myself. Okay, that works for me. <laughs> You're locking an elephant, then? I uh, believe so, yeah. I'm not trying to rush you, I'm just, I wasn't sure if you had locked one in. Um, no, I just wanted to be sure that I heard uh, uh, Mike correctly, um, but that was the only issue. Sorry, we had a, a little bit of a, a sound lag. I agree in locking an elephant. Okay, then we are locking an elephant. Okay, Jack? Uh, that is one of the ones that I have written down here as possibilities, and I also, my knowledge of Hindu doesn't get too far out of the Trimurti, but I do recall that there was an avatar that did have the form of a tiger, so I'll put in tiger as my answer. So, yeah, I mean, Vishnu is part of the Trimurti, so the ten avatars would fall into that, um, but I, I did say, yeah, I said evolutionary turning point. Some sort of more scientifically-minded Hindus have made a point of that sort of, the progression of avatars kind of retraces a sort of evolutionary history. The third was a boar. 
the second a tortoise, a reptile, and the first just a generic fish, which, um, mm. you know, part of the story of the Great Flood, which occurs in, in Hindu mythology and in almost all other mythologies across the world. Mm. Okay. All right, so um, boar, tortoise, fish was the answers? Yep. All right. All right, so Tucker and Jack now trying to steal from Mike. So Joan McCracken, the second wife of Bob Fosse, who got him his big break only to be abandoned for Gwen Verdon, is argued by her biographer, Lisa Jo Sagola, to be the inspiration for what fictional character? Sagola notes that this character owns a copy of a baseball guide edited by sports writer Jimmy Isominger, who was married to McCracken's aunt, and also suggested an incident in which McCracken violently tore up her dressing room after learning about her brother's death in World War II inspired a similar scene involving this character. Oh, and McCracken's first husband, Jack Dunphy, left her for a long-term relationship with the creator of this character. I'm not even sure what genre we're in here, but thinking (laughs) of a female character based on... I can throw in, um, actually, one more hint, which I wasn't originally intending to be a hint, but only if... Is is everyone okay with with adding in a hint? I don't want to differentially advantage anyone. Um, I, I... I heard the question once. I'm probably going to need to hear it again, but I don't have a problem with giving a hint. Okay, so as I was preparing these questions, I actually noticed back in the three R's round the question about Dorian Lee, and I deleted a clause from it. I originally had in it that Dorian Lee was also considered one of the inspirations for this character. Interesting. Okay. Mm. So I don't know heard that bob fossey came up in this i don't know his work particularly well i've seen cabaret i'm aware of all that jazz but even in cabaret i don't know the name of liza minnelli's character though there might have been a scene where she tore up a dressing room at some point don't quite recall that um yeah on the fossey angle i kind of was thinking about chicago so it may have been like maybe one of the characters from main characters from chicago either roxy hart or velma Mm -hmm. kelly but the baseball and the brother that died in world war ii that doesn't really hit on any of those characters from chicago that i can think of yeah and of course like all of those coming together made me immediately think of a league of their own but those aren't really characters who would have a creator necessarily that isn't petty marshall yeah although if you know who jack dempsey's wife was that could be a big lead in also and unfortunately i do not know that yeah i don't either mm-hmm. um so what do we, what, where do we want to put our chips in on um i think chicago is the strongest area that we have so far especially because there was certainly like a, like a violent subtext to that or at least a criminal one there um which you know, maybe some vandalism happened along the way. Uh, I think one of the characters from there would probably be our best guess of what we have so far. So you seem to know it a little better than I do. If you want to narrow it down by character, I think that's a good place to finish up our answer for this question. Yeah, I think it would lean more towards Roxy Hart uh, in that. So if you're okay with it, I think we'll lock in Roxy Hart. Yep, that's good with me. All right, Mike? I'm sorry, Yogesh, would you mind repeating the question? There was a lot to unpack there. Yeah, okay. Looking back, I think I might have put in maybe a little too much, but okay. So Joan McCracken, who was the second wife of Bob Fosse and got him his big break, but was abandoned for Gwen Verdon. So Joan McCracken is argued by her biographer to be the inspiration for what fictional character? Her biographer, Lisa Josegola, notes that this character owns a copy of a baseball guide edited by a sports writer who was married to McCracken's aunt in real life, and also suggested an incident in which McCracken violently tore up her dressing room after learning about her brother's death inspired a similar scene involving this character. 
Also, so before McCracken was married to Bob Fosse, she was married to a man named Jack Dunphy, who later had a long-term relationship with the creator of this character. Wow. Okay. So, yes, there's a lot of detail in there. And the thing that, because the names, each of the names has very little meaning to me besides Bob Fosse and, and then Glenn Verdon. But the names by themselves don't make any tumblers click. But So I'm trying to think of a character in a movie who would have owned a baseball guide and would have been set in World War II. And it was either Jack or Tucker who brought up Cabaret, which is pre World War II, that is 30s Germany, <laughs> and well, and now it just it just clicked to me. Uh, Liza Minnelli's character is Sally Bowles, but I don't think that fits. I could be wrong. However, because I'm not coming up with any better idea, I will say Sally Bowles. Yeah, I did recently read about the real life woman who was a inspiration for Sally Bowles. I'm blanking on her name right now, but um, yeah, I, I think I put a few too many red herrings here. The baseball part was a red herring. The World War II part also a red herring. The Jack Dunphy only really helped if you know that he was the long term domestic partner of an author who was famously homosexual. But in terms of a female character who reacted strongly when her brother died and who many different real life women, not just Dorian Lee, but also so uh, Carol Matthau and a few others are claimed as real-life models for. She was the creation of Truman Capote, and her name was Holly mm-hmm. Bunny. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. All right. So, um, okay, we'll move on. Mike and Jack now trying to steal from Tucker. Mm-hmm. Jennifer won three consecutive daytime Emmys for her role as When Norbach on As the World Turns. Michael created and directed the first several episodes of When Calls the Heart, the Hallmark Channel drama series that recently shed Lori Laughlin as a cast member. Christopher scripted four movies in the Paranormal Activity franchise and directed 2014's Paranormal Activity The Marked Ones, as well as the very entertaining Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You. All three of these siblings were fathered by what beloved TV star, a familiar face on our screens for three straight decades, who appeared 22 times on the cover of TV Guide. Yeah, I've, I've watched a couple of videos about Happy Death Day and how it's a good movie, but I can't recall the last name of the director of it. So I'll sit here and try to rack my brain and also try to put that in with somebody who was on the cover of TV Guide 22 times. So Mike, do you think, I mean, 22 times is a lot. Maybe that's a record. Is there a piece of trivia about who was on the cover of TV Guide the most? I don't know. 22 appearances in three decades implies somebody who was a star in multiple shows. Mm-hmm. Those few shows run that long. It seems to me there are a few exceptions. One name that came to mind was Van Patten, but I would expect to see Timothy Van Patten in this list. Uh, not there. And my way in, because I do not recognize any of the three children from their accomplishments, so my angle is trying to figure out who the father could be, strictly based on an actor who was around for at least, what, 12, 15 years on TV in popular shows. Yeah. And I'm just throwing out names. I think of Andy Griffith. Um, Maybe like an Ed O'Neill. I was thinking of Fred Ed O'Neill. So aside from Married with Children, oh, he's also in um, Modern Family. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Do you think Ed O'Neill's been on TV Guide 22 times? Yeah, maybe not with 
I'm not sure Married with Children was exactly where TV Guide wanted to like highlight things, but <laughs> it's a weekly right. publication. Somebody's got to be on the cover every week. If Ed O'Neill will show up for a TV shoot, get him and Katie Seagal together and take a picture. Uh, Christopher, um, like Christopher uh, O'Neill as part of the Paranormal Activity, that rings a bell for me, but it, it may be completely off. Let me throw out, let me think out loud. Uh, how about Ron Howard? Well, again, like similar to what you said, I think maybe they would mention Bryce Dallas Howard in that. Um, oh, okay, right, right. Okay, yeah. Um, would it be like a Ted Danson? I, well, Ted Danson is across, what, 80s, 90s, aughts, and teens, so he's already he's already beyond the parameters of the question. In fact, I, okay. I've in an argument, I've actually suggested that Ted Danson might be the most successful television of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to ask Gilgash to repeat his question. Do you remember hearing the word beloved or anything like like a familial, like a Robert Young type or a Fred McMurray? A Fred McMurray wasn't that. Uh, and I'm probably I'm probably going too far back in the past. Probably probably good to somebody who's in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Ed Asner. Um, I, I don't like Ed, Ed Asner as this. How about Ted Knight? Yeah, I could go with that. Christopher Knight, that sounds a little familiar. Yeah, I think we could zone in on that. Let's take a shot. All right, Ted Knight, locked in. All right. Uh, I noticed in your discussion of Ted Danson, you didn't mention, of course, his best series, Becker. But, um... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. I just forgot about Becker. Some people stand by (laughs) Becker. I don't know, but they do. All right, Tucker. What, what, wasn't uh, wasn't that a part of a BoJack Horseman monologue about having to go back and see Becker? <laughs> that might have been. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Um, so on the question, I do love the Happy Death Day movies, and you said the Paranormal Activity movie he was involved with was the Marked Ones, right? That was the one he directed. Yeah. So I believe this is Christopher Landon. And even though I'm just 90 or so percent sure of his father's name, I'm going to say Landon and hope that's good enough. Yeah, just the last name is all that's needed from here. Um, mm-hmm. and actually, I did mention uh, Michael Landon Jr., so I even yeah, kind of did. Yes. <laughs> thought it wasn't <laughs> Elf, but I had to be 100 percent sure. Yeah, that was the father of a different female celebrity. Um, <laughs> Senator Nancy Kinsapong. All right. We will now close out this round with a question for Tucker and Mike trying to steal from Jack. Inspired by a custom-made raccoon police beret gifted to her by a fan at a convention in Bahrain, Canadian model Julia Voth released in 2016 a series of popular photos of herself cosplaying as what video game character? This is appropriate as her main claim to fame is serving as this character's physical model for the 2002 game that was the first GameCube release to feature this character. Sorry, I couldn't quite hear you. Oh, wow. Could you please read? Siri apparently wants to answer that question, too. Yeah, she wants to yeah. answer <laughs> uh, can Siri be on Mike and I's team for this question? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so I do know a little bit about early GameCube. 2002, I was eight, so I was, you know, very excited by the possibility of getting my own video game system. Still took another year, but nonetheless, um, so you said it was a beret, was that it? Yes. Okay, well, um, that does throw me off a little bit, but I do know one of the first big GameCube games to be part of a larger series that began before the GameCube was released and has a female lead character would be the Metroid series. Are you looking for the series or the character? The character. The character. Okay, so I would say that Samus would be a pretty strong guess here. I don't know where the beret would necessarily fit in, but Mike, do you have any other thoughts on this one? I'm just thinking that I'm happy to have coattails to hang on. 
down to. Uh, you go right ahead. All right, we're going to lock in Samus. All right, yeah. So the uh, the previous episode hasn't been edited or released yet, but there was a question in, I think it was the, the episode right before this one, to which the answer was Samus, but we're not going with two consecutive Samus questions. So, uh, Jack? Uh, I think there was some minutia in the question, so I'm, I'm going to ask if I can get a repeat of the question, Yogesh. So, inspired by a custom-made raccoon police beret gifted to her by a fan at a convention in Bahrain, Canadian model Julia Voth, V-O-T-H, released in 2016 a series of popular photos of herself cosplaying as what video game character? This is appropriate as her main claim to fame is serving as this character's physical model for the 2002 game that was the first GameCube release to feature this character. Okay, so the raccoon police that indicates it's ra- Makes me think you're thinking about uh, Raccoon City, which is a main part of the Resident Evil franchise. Uh, and I believe the beret wearing Resident Evil character is going to be Jill Valentine. So I'll lock that in. Right, yeah. So I'm not aware of any actual connection between the names of Julia Voth and Jill Valentine because the character was pre existing to her involvement with the franchise. So I think it's just a coincidence. But yes, she was famously the uh, physical model for another JV, Jill Valentine. She almost became a Jill sandwich. Hmm. Okay, so we will end that round with, I believe, I'll recheck these, but I believe it's Mike at 11.0, Tucker at 13.1, and Jack at 20.0. In the last round, the super hard round, the questions will be much harder, but the points will go up to six points for a steal and five for a specialist, so there have been very huge swings in points at this point, so the game is still anyone's to play for. So we'll begin with the first question of this round going to Tucker and Jack, starting to steal from Mike. So perhaps the three greatest Negro Leagues players of all time, Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, and Cool Papa Bell, were all part of a short-lived team assembled in 1937 by what baseball-loving dictator to represent a capital city that he had named after himself? Note that the city reverted to its old name in 1961 after this dictator's death. How well do you know your 1950s world history? <laughs> Not super great, but didn't he, I think he said he formed the team in 1937. Oh, yeah. Is that, that, that correct, Yes. I assume he was the dictator up until his death, as dictators tend to be. Mm -hmm. Um, But I could be totally wrong on that, too. Yeah. Uh, So a dictator that named a city after himself. Um, I guess the question is, is it still named that? So I said that it reverted to its older name in 1961. Okay. So I'm thinking I'm kind of jumping to Haiti with, like, Papa Doc Duvalier. Since that's close, but I don't know if that time period is even close to right, if he was the dictator in 1937 or not. And even then, I'm not sure I could generate a city name, unless it's just like Duvalier. Yeah, I'm trying to get at this from the baseball angle. I'm no expert on the Negro Leagues, but I do know a little bit, and trying to see if I can piece together any connection from like a team that I remember hearing them play for, or any of the pictures I've seen of them. Just baseball I, reference stat listing for Satchel oh, Page yeah. and just the really weird entry. Yeah. <laughs> Five games, 1937. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think this has to be, this must be somewhere in Latin America, I would assume. Or the Caribbean. He, 
Yeah, oh, oh, yeah, I, I'm kind of combining like the area okay. between the United States and Venezuela all in one and did a very poor job of it. Um, so, yeah, Haiti doesn't stand out as a particular baseball loving country, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. What other dictators are you aware of maybe in Central America or any of the other Caribbean countries? In the 30s? Uh, yeah, that's, 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 <laughs> that's not really my, my wheelhouse. Yeah, well, it's not mine either. <laughs> so that's that makes it difficult. Um, and are we looking for the name of the dictator himself or the team? Yes, the dictator. Okay, thanks. That does make it a little easier, I suppose. So Haiti very well could be then. Um, well, and there's the obvious, like, Dominican Republic on the same island. Yeah, yeah. But I, I can't um, think of any dictators in the Dominican Republic. Yeah, I can't think of them by name either. And it doesn't necessarily say that where the team was formed or where they played. Yeah, that's Which true. I think... Uh, helps on that a lot. So I think what we have so far is not a bad guess, um, yep. given that I don't think we're getting any closer. <laughs> yeah, you just want to go with Papa Doc Duvalier? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. All right, we'll lock in Papa Doc Duvalier, Yogesh. All right, Mike? I'm sorry, Yogesh. The audio cut out when you read the question the first time. Would you mind rereading it? Sure. Perhaps the three greatest Negro League players of all time, Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, and Cool Papa Bell, were all part of a short-lived team assembled in 1937 by what baseball-loving dictator to represent a capital city that he had renamed after himself? Note that the city reverted to its old name in 1961 after this man's death. Okay, so in 1937, Paige and Gibson had been with the Homestead Grays. Now, there are two things that jump out at me. One was the Cuban connection to the Negro Leagues. Many Negro League teams were actually called uh, referred to as Cuban-based to throw off the African-American consideration. And then 1961 date, I would not have known anything about a name change, but it was Bautista in Cuba who lost power to Castro in either 59, 60, 61, I can't remember, but I'm going to say Bautista. All right, yeah. So you both went to the Caribbean, and you both mentioned the country in the Caribbean that's most associated with loving baseball, I think. I mean, along with Cuba, there's a huge love of baseball in the Dominican Republic. And the dictator who was assassinated in 1961, but who ruled it for much of the 20th century before that, his name was Rafael Trujillo. Oh. Yeah, that's a name I've heard. Well, I knew, yeah, I knew the name Trujillo. I didn't know the story about him in 1937. Yeah, he essentially pulled a Mr. Burns and just decided to get all of them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all the best baseball players he could to make up his team. So which one of them got gigantism? Three finger brown. Okay, now Mike and Jack to steal from Tucker. So this one had an additional hint, which I think I'm just going to throw in. Um, yeah, okay. So if Mike and Jack to steal from Tucker, if Circe Ronan gets an Oscar nomination for performance within the next six years, she'll likely seize from Kate Winslet the title of youngest person to get five acting Oscar nominations. She's already the second youngest person to get four, three, and two competitive acting Oscar nominations. The only person younger than her when they got their third and fourth such nominations was Jennifer Lawrence. But who is the only performer to get their second Oscar nomination at a younger age than Circe Ronan? Or to say this another way, out of all the performers who have more than one competitive Oscar nomination in an acting category, which one received their second such nomination at the youngest age? And I will throw in one more hint. It may be hard to believe that this person was ever young. <laughs> and I'm sorry, are you restricting to actresses or is this all acting categories? Performers, so any acting category. Okay, thank you. 
Yeah, I think so. That may be the kind of the the swing here. I'm thinking since he mentioned so many female actors that he may be looking towards a male actor. And I know who's the old actor whose first name is Mickey, Mickey something. Mickey Rooney, are you thinking of? Yeah, I think Mickey Rooney was actually pretty young when he was nominated for some Oscars as a child. I may be pulling that out of nowhere. No, I think you, uh, that's a good track. Mickey Rooney, I want to say he appeared in Boys Town with Spencer Tracy in 1939. I cannot say with certainty that he was nominated, but that was at a time when Mickey and Mickey Rooney was, I want to say, with Judy Garland in certain movies. And it's, uh, I think Yogesh's hint, well, allusion there about it's hard to believe this person was ever young, certainly Mickey Rooney. Last little, should I be, is he the past tense? I'm not sure if he's in the past tense or not. Um, but I, I believe he, he, he reached a very advanced age. I want to, I want to say a hundred, but I'm not certain. Certainly Mickey Rooney, child actor. And, uh, and I know he got nominated for some Oscars when he was young, or at least I'm pretty sure. Okay. Well then, right. Without having a very specific name in mind, I, I was going to, I was thinking of a few people who were nominated at very young ages, like Adam Paquin and uh, Tatum O'Neill, both winners, but I'd be happy uh, to settle on Mickey Rooney. Yeah. So I think we'll, we'll lock in Mickey Rooney. Yogesh. All right. Yeah. Very good. Breaking down of the information in the question. He actually passed away in 2014 at age 93. And he did, in addition to winning a lifetime, um, you know, basically like a lifetime achievement award toward the end of his life, he uh, won a juvenile award very early in his life. In terms of competitive nominations, he was nominated for Best Actor for Babes in Arms and The Human Comedy. The second one coming in the, the early 40s when he would have been in his early 20s. So he was quite young when he got his second competitive nomination, but there is someone who was younger oh wow okay <laughs> i like that bit of suspense there for me that was uh, <laughs> heart was pounding um i genuinely thought they had the right answer so let's see if the human comedy was his second that would have put him okay hint that it's hard to believe that this person was ever young is a fun one but i don't know whether or not to take that literally or if there is some sort of wordplay hint there too if i'm taking it literally i do have a couple thoughts in mind i know jessica tandy had a long career in hollywood with more than one nomination and i believe she had a couple early on in her career again i i am still thinking that this is probably a male actor and my original thought was leonardo dicaprio but that doesn't necessarily make much sense with the hints that were given but i do like jessica tandy for this i, I think i'm going to lock in jessica tandy right so um in terms of jessica's that was the right name to think of in terms of a, an actor who it's hard to remember was young who's actually still with us today at age 94 she was nominated for two of her first three film roles in Gaslight and the Picture of Dorian Gray, and her name is Angela Lansbury. Oh, yes. Yep. Oh. Yep. Yes. Shoot. <laughs> Great question. Yeah. All right. Now, uh, okay. So, yeah. Tucker and Mike now to steal from Jack. So, which now obscure 1948 musical prompted the shortest review in Leonard Maltin's movie guide, consisting solely of a one-word answer to the title query, that answer being no. Note that Maltin was a much bigger fan of the 1932 Morty Chevalier Jeanette MacDonald musical Love Me Tonight, which he gave four out of four stars. Okay, so this is me and Mike? Yep. Okay, uh, Mike, I think I 
know this one. I'm also pretty sure it was used for a title that has no relation to it in just this past year. But I'm pretty sure this movie is called Isn't It Romantic? Oh, okay. Okay. I, I didn't... I didn't have an in there, so I'll be happy to go with what you have. Yeah, I think I remember hearing about this review on a podcast, so we'll lock in Isn't It Romantic? Yeah, so Leonard Maldon was one of my instructors at USC. I made sure to tell him that I uh, appreciated the conciseness with which he just summed up everything about this movie, Isn't It Romantic, with the word no. So that, yeah, Mike and Tucker get six points, the first correct answer of this round. And now Tucker and Jack trying to steal from Mike. So the Scandinavian noir detective series The Bridge, which centers on the Orasund Bridge connecting Denmark and Sweden, has been remade in at least four other transnational settings. So the U.S. version, which aired for two seasons on FX between 2013 and 2014, focused on what bridge? All right, so I know that the main thing, it was a bridge between the U.S. and Mexico. Yeah, I definitely remember that. Um, Do you remember what state it was? I want to say El Paso was the city that it was set in. I don't remember this series well. I was thinking California, but El Paso is also, you know, a very large city on the border and would definitely make a lot of sense. And would need a bridge with the Rio Grande there. Yeah, that's true. So Uh, do you uh, happen to know your bridges of the southern U.S.? Not of El Paso. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So could it be as simple as just like the Rio Grande Bridge? Um, I don't think so. Like Big Bend National Park is part of the Rio Grande, but I don't think that would really be in play for this question. It's possible that it's because where where does the Rio Grande start the border? Is it, is it right when Texas starts, or is it actually part of New Mexico as well? It's a great question. I wish I knew the answer to. No, I think, uh, it's, I think it's entirely the Texas border. So I think we're we're in Texas. Uh-huh. El Paso is one of the is the city that's most connected with the city on the other side which i think is also just called el paso in mexico right yeah so really now it's just coming up with the name of a bridge in el paso yeah um (laughs) and i've spent basically no time in texas so i if you want to go with something as simple as el paso bridge i don't think los pasos bridge would really make sense even if they're both el paso dos dos pasos bridge yeah (laughs) Uh, so yeah, yeah well, if you want to think about this a little more, that's fine. But I, I don't think I'm going to come up with anything better on this one. Nah, because I think the only inroads that we have would like be delving deep into the history of El Paso, which that's not a knowledge I have. Yeah. Uh, so I. I think we're probably at our best just generalizing and saying the El Paso Bridge and locking that in Yogesh. Yep. All right. Very um, good strategy to use. But um, Mike? Okay. Uh, and yeah, I, I think the, the, uh, Jack and Tucker used very good logic. And I also am I'm focused on the Rio Grande. And we're looking for the name of a show. Is that right? No, the name of the bridge. The name of the bridge. I see. Okay. The name of the bridge. So the crossing points over the Rio Grande, and yes, this happens to be stuff like kind of no. Uh, El Paso certainly is one, uh, and, and it crosses to Ciudad Juarez. There is the crossing between Laredo and Nuevo Laredo. There are several bridges, and one I know of that's named there's a Colombiana Bridge. And then there's a, a one at Falcon, which I crossed at once, which nobody knows about. And between uh, Reynosa and um, Brownsville, Texas. So 
The area that is most fraught, most dangerous, is most certainly El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. And uh, since Tucker and Jack chose El Paso, I'm going to go to the other side and say the Juarez Bridge. All right. So, yeah, the combination of television and geography did help you guys all narrow in on the correct metropolitan area. But the specific bridge, very big there, seen in the bridge, recreated in... uh, I think I'm wearing Albuquerque for uh, a shootout in the movie Sicario. Uh, It is, yeah, it does connect um, El Paso and Ciudad Juarez, but it's called the Bridge of the Americas. Oh, okay. (laughs) So now for Mike and Jack trying to steal from Tucker, this question is based on a suggestion by my friend and pub quiz teammate Alex Darby. So thanks to him for steering me down these lines. Here's a question. Founded by Bad Religion guitarist Brett Gurowitz, Epitaph Records made its name with punk artists like NoFX, Rancid, and The Offspring. So it may be somewhat surprising that they're also the label behind what 2010 album by a somewhat mainstream skewing alternative alternative rock group. This album includes songwriting contributions by Ryan Adams, Tony Canal of No Doubt, Linda Perry, and strangely Mac Davis. Oh, and one track features the mandolin stylings of Michael Cera. Mandel. Alright, so 2010 alt rock album, Ryan Adams would be who would get Michael Cera in and to play a mandolin? Uh, so I, I missed part of the question, I'm sorry. Uh, you said Brett Gerwitz of Bad Religion? Yes, he is the founder of Epitaph Records. Okay. So could you repeat the second half about the, the 2010 alternative album, the details of that? Yeah, so a 2010 album by a somewhat mainstream skewing alternative rock group. This album includes songwriting contributions by Ryan Adams, No Doubt's Tony Canal, Linda Perry, and strangely, Mac Davis. Oh, and one track features the mandolin stylings of Michael Cera. Okay, so popular skewing alt-rock band that would have a mandolin in it kind of puts me towards Arcade Fire. And from there, I don't Mm. know if I can actually name any of their albums, although maybe The Suburbs is one of their albums? Yeah, The Suburbs is one of their albums. Okay, so we're we're supposed to come up with the name of the album, is that right? Yes. Yeah, the, the 2010 album. The 2010 album, okay. Uh, so Funeral was 2003 or four, and The Suburbs was the next album. I want to say it's 2007. We're looking, if we are going with Arcade Fire, well, wait a second. When was Neon Bible? So it's either Neon Bible or The Suburbs. Now I'm getting mixed up. Which was first? I think you were right. I think The Suburbs was 2010. I think Neon Bible was 2007. Alternative, uh, so a, a mainstream-leaning alternative rock, Arcade Fire would certainly fit into that. 2010, who else? Uh, something like TV on the radio? Um, Maybe. Vampire Weekend? Yeah, those are kind of popular-leaning alt-rock groups. Mandolin makes me think about Mumford & Sons, but I don't know if I would actually call them alt-rock. I would not call them alt-rock. I don't think they, you know, I don't see a reason to grab any of those specifically. You mean outside of choosing Arcade Fire? Like, I, I like Arcade Fire oh. as the band we're on as the best Okay, choice. you do. Yeah. Okay, so if you do, so... I'm between two titles. It's either Neon Bible or The Suburbs. And I think that The Suburbs came after Neon Bible. So I would agree with you that we'd go with The Suburbs. All right. So I think we'll lock in The Suburbs by Arcade Fire. Yogesh. Are you sure it's not Arcade Fire by The Suburbs? Or The Suburbs is the album. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry, uh, I couldn't resist that joke. Um, yeah, the uh, yeah, so so that's yeah a good guess. The, the right year certainly. Wikipedia actually lists the genres for that as indie rock, art rock, and baroque pop. Uh, it doesn't actually list alternative rock as a genre. But I think the main thing that would rule it out is that Arcade Fire did not collaborate with any external songwriters on that album. It was all written by them. Okay. But very good. Yeah, okay. very good guess. Uh, I'll say this, that would have been my guess too. So um, <laughs> you guys are definitely on the right track. But then again, Arcade Fire has so many members that they don't really need to bring in anybody to write any other songs. Uh, <laughs> but they do need Michael Sarah for Mandolin. Well, who doesn't? <laughs> uh, so let's see. Mainstream leaning alt rock band who would have had a mandolin on a song. A 2010 album and... I'd remember this because that would be either my junior or senior year of high school, so I was listening to a lot of mainstream-leaning indie rock at the time. I think Mumford & Sons would also be a great guess, not that I can remember the title of their first album, assuming it wasn't self-titled. Another 2010 mainstream albums would have come out. That was a little bit before Imagine Dragons, would have been a little bit before The Lumineers got big. You said it was Epitaph Records? Yep. Okay. Um, if I had the CD, I might be able to pick the little logo on my mind although that didn't help me at all with the rare video game question earlier either um so if i remember correctly and i might not i think the title of the first mumford and sons album was little lion man so i'm going to say that i want to check because i know that was the name of one of their songs but yeah that was from an album called sign no more uh, oh, yes, thank you. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of trying to picture a cover, that was a good pack because this was one of the more memorable album covers of that era, just for its seeming randomness, and one of the albums put out by that group that, that did actually have a picture on the cover and wasn't just a solid color. Uh... But the, the... Yeah, the, the lead vocalist who enjoys collaborating with outside songwriters is named Rivers Cuomo. The band is Weezer. And the album featuring uh, actor Jorge Garcia on the album cover was called Hurley. Mm. Oh, okay, okay. In my mind, Weezer hasn't put out a new song since 2005, so... <laughs> <laughs> this would be a good place to throw in many quotes from that Matt Damon Saturday Night Live skit. But, um... Yeah, I was just about to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll just move on to the next question. Tucker and Mike trying to steal from Jack. Okay, so there's two possible answers. I'll tell you up front. There are two possible answers for this question. So, what female death spirits and daughters of Nyx from Greek mythology have a plural collective name spelled the same in English as the surname of an Estonian chess grandmaster who was four times runner-up in the candidates tournament to become challenger to the World Chess Championship between 1953 and 1962, but never actually got to play for the championship himself? Now, you can give either the collective name of these spirits in Greek, which is spelled the same as the Grandmaster's name, or you can give the name of their Roman equivalent, which is similar to both the 1982 Dario Argento film, initially released in the U.S. as Unsane, and to a 17th century Baroque painting style typified by followers of Caravaggio, like Artemisia Gentileschi and the so-called Utrecht School. These are two linguistically unrelated, yeah. I'm trying to think of Dario Argento movies because that's my in on this. And the two that come to mind are Tenebre and, I guess, Inferno. Do either of those make sense with what you were thinking? I, well, I, I 
first was trying to stab at the Estonian grandmaster. But for that period of the 50s and 60s, if they didn't win the championship, I'm probably not going to be able to summon the name very well. And then the second half of the question, it was a stream of facts, and I was trying to find one that I could grab onto. Um, mm. So nothing jumps to mind, but there was a lot, again, a, a lot to unpack in that question. Yeah. Yogesh, would you mind repeating the part that came after the Dario Argento reference, just to have that frame of reference? So the name of the Roman equivalent of these spirits is similar to both a 1982 Dario Argento film that was initially released in the U.S. as Unsane, and is also similar to a 17th century Baroque painting style typified by followers of Caravaggio, like Artemisia Gentileschi and the so-called Utrecht School. Hmm. Let's see. <laughs> I could list off a few Argento movies that are not Suspiria in hopes that rings some sort of bell between the two of us, but otherwise I don't think I have much of an in on this otherwise. Yeah, and... Uh... I recently, well, not recently, a few months ago, I heard the uh, misinformation podcast on Jetleski, and I, I'm embarrassed I can't summon that artistic style, and also because my wife studied in Utrecht, so I mm. wish I knew more about that. Uh, no, go ahead, go ahead and, and, and name some Dario Argento movies, and we'll see. If okay, uh, there's Tenebra. I don't really know how that's pronounced. I'm inflecting it so that you can see the spelling, I guess. Tenebra, Inferno. Sure. Opera, Deep Red, which wouldn't have been released as Unsane here. So I guess like the two that I, or the three that I come back to because I could see them being released here under a different title in non-English would be Tenebra or Opera or Inferno. I don't know the years of those, but I believe they all came out in the first half of the 1980s. Okay, and one of those three terms is supposed to match up with an artistic style of Gentileschi and the Utrecht school. Yeah, that would be um, very, very similar to the answer that we need for this question. Right. So opera is the plural of opus, I believe, right? Inferno, I don't... Well, to me, Tenebra, I, 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 I think of Tenebra, this is from my biology background, but I think of that as being rooted in the word for worms. Now, I don't know if... I should know the Greek term for worms... Um, I think of the three that you put out, I think the one that I would choose is Tenebra. Okay. Would you know um, of the connection for the mythology thing as well? Again, I'm not much of a help here, but I can hopefully get us off to a start with the uh, Argento knowledge here. So, uh, so, oh, so the connection to the, I, I simply don't. Yeah. Um, no, the, the mythology angle, I mean, what, what, so when Yogesh started the question, which was, you know, quite extended, um, if I remember right, these were, what, offspring of, of somebody significant? Daughters of Nyx, N-Y-X. Daughters of Nyx. Okay, Daughters of Nyx. So, plural. I don't, no, I, <laughs> for a moment I was thinking, uh, Something to do with Medusa, but no, that, that's I think that's a, that's a deviation. Uh, I I'm sorry. I feel like this is a it's one of these clues that were written down in front of us. We might have perhaps a better chance of piecing together a puzzle, but I feel like I can't come up with anything beyond the Dario Argento titles that you could. That's pretty much our. Yeah, that's about 
where I am too on this. I can't get much farther. Which one do you think sounds linguistically the closest? Then we'll go with that. I would say Tenebra simply because that to me, again, I, I feel like that that is rooted in mm-hmm. uh, word for worms. I could be totally off on that, but that's that's the one that I feel is the vaguest and thus the best bet. Okay, then let's lock that in. All right, locking in Tenebra. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So opera actually is from the, the late, 80s. I think the the mid-80s Argento film is Phenomena, which was released in the U.S. originally as Creepers, which is a pretty terrible title. (laughs) But um, the one that was originally released as Unsane in uh, 1982 was Tenebrae which comes from the Latin for um, shadows or darkness. The high contrast style that Paul Worth of Caravaggio used is called tenebrism, and the Latin name for these spirits is, in plural, the darknesses, tenebrae. So, yes, that is an acceptable answer. Wow. Nice job. <laughs> Thanks, Congratulations. Job. We did it. <laughs> I didn't think we were going to get there. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting here hoping you would go for opera and like, oh yeah, the tenebre means worms and that would get you away from it. But yeah. totally mean yeah, shadow. I, I, totally I don't know why sense. I thought that. As yeah. I thought a little bit later, I started to realize that opera has a heavy metal soundtrack. So that must've been a little later in the decades and that kind of helped a bit. Yeah. So in Greek, they're they're known as the Kires, but it's spelled the same as Paul Keras, the Estonian grandmaster who came very close on about five or six occasions to the World Chess Championship but never actually got it. All right. So we're now on the last cycle of questions. So each one of you will get one remaining question that is in your, well, related to your topic of specialty. And you're actually all within six points of each other. So the game is still yet to be decided. So now we will go to Tucker and Jack trying to steal from Mike. Neuroscientist Eric Kandel won a Nobel Prize for researching the physiological basis of memory storage. He made his first breakthroughs in this domain using Aplysia californica, a gastropod prize for its simple nervous system and large, easily identified neurons. So I'll be a little lenient, but not too lenient in terms of what I accept. Just tell me what specific kind of animal is Aplysia californica? Okay, a simple life form that does have memory and simple neurons. Well, there's that old wives' tale about goldfish and their memories. Mm-hmm. But that sounds more like somebody that somebody would win an Ig Nobel award for studying the memory of goldfish but i mean there's there's some truth to all of those old wives tales right i assume so um i'm obviously letting you run point here because again <laughs> science not really going to be something that i can help unless there's a pop culture bend to it mm-hmm. uh i mean i've run through the list of people that have won Nobel prizes and i don't remember like goldfish popping out but i think we're on some sort of sea creature i think that sounds right especially if it's like a simple form with a, yeah. you know not not a great memory that seems about right would california be a geographic graphic hints at all or what's the latin meaning of that i suppose so like the species names all kind of are based on like when they were discovered and then you can put whatever names i mean like they name they name species of flies i think like after gary anderson for his far side stuff so you can't like sometimes they'll use locations as a big indication of what the species names ends up being but it can be completely random where they get that stuff from okay the one that we could try to zone in on is apliagra can i can i get the spelling for that yogesh yeah the genus name is a p l y s i a a p l y s i a uh-huh all right that's very greek so my college latin classes aren't helping me out too much for that uh but i think 
I think if we're on sea creature and going with the memory stuff, like the big joke with the goldfish, that's probably the best way for us to get an answer in. So I think I'm okay locking that in if you are. Yeah, the the way you reasoned it out is perfectly fine with me. So let's lock that in. All right, we'll lock in goldfish, uh, Yogesh. All right, Mike? Okay, I feel an apology is in order here because Yogesh, again, kind of went right into uh, my diary somehow. Um, but um, <laughs> there was there was a point actually some years ago when I had this opportunity of possibly joining a research project on Aplesia Californica and specifically memory, studying memory in the organism with a researcher who said, well, we may be able to collaborate with Eric Candela on this. So, yeah, thank you, Yogesh, Aplesia Californica. And and by the way, uh, I don't know if it was Tucker or Jack who said, you know, mentioned the idea that it would be worthy of an ignoble prize, but the fact is that a lot of really important molecular and genetic work is done in simple organisms because of their simplicity. And Aplesia is a mollusk. The common name is the sea hare. I don't know, Yogesh, if you're looking for the phylum or the common name. Um, the yeah, common name is the sea hare. Yeah, so I think, yeah, the common name of the Californica species is uh, California sea hare. It's often referred to as a sea slug, so I would have accepted that. Or, wait, was it sea slug or sea snail? One of those. But, um... It's best known as the sea hare, and what researchers do is actually study a certain reflex that becomes conditioned if you do it repeatedly, and because there are so few neurons, they can kind of then zone in on the neurons and see what's been changing as a result of this sort of memory. Sorry, I'm going on and on, but it is very interesting. <laughs> I'm going to yeah, say, so I think I, Mike earned these points. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so the, um, yeah, so I, I would have accepted sea hare or California sea hare. also would have accepted sea slug, since it's that's a kind of a, a larger, but still not that large class of animals to which it belongs. I wouldn't have accepted sea snail, which is a much larger class that's a little too vague but yes you definitely earned the points all right now for okay this uh again sometimes i save the questions toward the end for kind of the long stories so this is the penultimate question of the game so it is a long story but you don't have to concentrate for all that much longer since the game's almost over (laughs) okay so this goes to mike and jack trying to steal from tucker so, while pitching for the Portland Mavericks, a now deep, so uh, I'm in the Portland area now, I'll try and include local connections when I can. So, while pitching for the Portland Mavericks, a now defunct independent professional baseball team founded in the 1970s by the father of actor Kurt Russell, Rob Nelson noticed a bad boy chewing licorice cut up to resemble chewing tobacco and got an idea. So, he sent away for a mail-order chewing gum kit, which was apparently a thing in those days, and then he commandeered the family kitchen of that bad boy, who sister he was dating, and together they made the first batch of what eventually became the still popular chewing gum brand, Big League Chew. Now, that young man who was uh, at the time a bat boy, he grew up, he moved to Hollywood, he became an actor, he appeared opposite Adam West in Conan O'Brien and Robert Smigel's legendary never-picked-up pilot Look Well, and he had roles in many feature films, including Twister and Eyes Wide Shut. He was in a movie called Sleep With Me with Quentin Tarantino, where they had a conversation about the homosexual subtext of Top Gun, which is often excerpted and 
become a bit of a viral clip. Then he shifted gears again, moving behind the camera. He wrote and directed two feature films. One came out in 2001 and the next in 2006. Together, they earned him three Oscar nominations. Since then, he's announced many projects, including an ambitious collaboration with Sir David Hare on an adaptation of Jonathan Franzen's novel Purity, but he has yet to actually make anything since 2006. So name this paralyzed by success baseball loving filmmaker. Oh man, there's a there's a lot. So, so after you mentioned Twister, I was thinking Philip Seymour Hoffman, but then the next few words knocked that out. So I I, I I'm, I'm trying to parse the time frame here because uh, saying this bad boy grew okay in the 1970s. Big League Chew was invented, and Yogesh, you said that this bad boy then grew up. Is that right? Well, I mean, he be, yeah, he, he was certainly quite a bit older when he was in movies in Hollywood. Right. Okay. Well, the, the thing that jumps out, and again, I was trying to write down as many of the facts as I could, but uh, Yogesh, you said that he appeared in Eyes Wide Shut and also appeared in Sleep With Me? Yes. Okay. One actor who was in both of those movies is the redheaded actor Eric Stoltz who was the piano player. Wait, no, 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 no. The first Marty McFly. It's not Eric Stoltz. It is the other guy who was also in Sleep With Me. And I can picture him. I can picture him. He's the one who gives the word Fidelio to the Tom Cruise character. But it is it is not Eric Stoltz. And um, Sleep With Me. Sleep With Me had... Oh, the... A quick appearance by Eric Quentin Tarantino. It had Parker Posey, uh, and it had this guy, and I could picture him because in Eyes Wide Shut he has this sort of mustache goatee combination. Uh, Yogesh, would you mind reading the parts after the Sleep with Me hit? Okay, so from Sleep with Me he had a conversation with Quentin Tarantino. Um, he then shifted gears and moving behind the camera. He wrote and directed two feature films. One came out in 2001 and the other in 2006. Together, they earned him three Oscar nominations. Since then, he's announced many projects, including a collaboration with Sir David Hare on an adaptation of Jonathan Franzen's Purity, but he has not actually made any directorial credits since 2006. Okay. Uh, uh, um, you know what? And this is, this is now... Um, this is now... Um, there's a neuron firing somewhere deep in my brain that has this guy's name stuck in it and i i'm sorry am i with tucker or jack on this right now? uh you're jack. with me jack okay jack uh is anything i'm saying ringing any bells for you uh no so i didn't see eyes wide shut the only movie that i saw the ones listed were twister and i'm thinking about like the crew that was with bill paxton and helen hunt and i mean you got your jack black you got your philip seymour hoffman Carrie Elways was one of the rival guys, but he's been doing movies since then, as have Jack Black and Philip Seymour Hoffman, obviously. So I can't really name anybody else from Twister. So it sounds like you're you're the closest of the two of us, and you're much closer and, than I am. And I think I have a first name, but I'm not going to say it out loud right now because um, <laughs> <laughs> some, uh, there's somebody lying in wait over there. Um <laughs> And, you know, it's going to be this, the situation when either uh, Tucker or Yogesh reveals the name of him. I'm going to say, of course, yeah, that guy, because I could do a police sketch of him right now. I just can't summon his <laughs> last name. And 
this is wrong. This is wrong. But again, uh, if we do learn league rules and you give me an hour, maybe <laughs> I stumble upon it. Again, in the interests of entertainment and brevity, I am going to stab with Hartnet. I'll defer to whatever Mike has to say. Did you say Hartnet? Hartnet. All right. Okay. Interesting. I will pass this over to Tucker. Um, is it okay if I clarify two parts of the question? One is the movies he directed came out in 2001 and 2006. That's not the year they were nominated for the Oscar, correct? Well, it's the eligibility year. Yeah. Okay. They were, yeah. The, uh, I just wanted uh, to be sure you uh, were saying the 2006 ceremony. And the other was that um, he was nominated for the Oscar, not the movie, correct? Was what you were implying? Right. Well, I mean, obviously, any nominations he got would also count for the movie. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I was saying that he personally has been three times nominated for an Academy Award. Gotcha. Okay. Just wanted to make sure I was on the right track here. Unfortunately, having seen Eyes Wide Shut and Twister, but not sleep with me i think i get the sense of who this actor is but i don't remember the lower build cast of eyes wide shut all that well other than alan cummings cameo in a hotel lobby so i'm really trying to focus in on the movies he directed and wrote this is where i'm coming up just a little blank this would have been right before i started heavily paying attention to the oscars in 2001 i was seven years old so there weren't a whole lot of movies i could have watched at the time i'm trying to focus in on the 2006 one trying to think who would have potentially won a screenplay award of course he might not have necessarily won director he could have won for perhaps editing or if he shot his own movie he could have won cinematography screenplay and picture something maybe a production credit oh my god um so okay best picture in 2001 would have been a beautiful mind and i doubt this is ron howard um which means that that might have been a screenplay award and then 2006 obviously scorsese's year so he couldn't have won couldn't have won much because that would have been adapted screenplay the departed uh which means i suppose yeah um this lines up with original screenplay in 2006 and this is also particularly difficult for me because i've seen the documentary about this baseball team that's narrated by kurt russell all the way through and i remember this anecdote and i am just totally blanking on the career of the person you're asking for right now uh which means i need to do a little bit more thinking in order to dig this up and the name is just not coming to me an auteur that hasn't really released a feature film since 2006 won three oscars oh no, I, I said he was nominated for oh i'm sorry nominated yeah goodness so maybe that threw me off too um but if he was nominated that means he must have been nominated for director at least once along the lines uh there's twice as many nominations for screenplay than there is director so i assume he got two of those and one for director i want to say the 2001 director race was mostly english or british directors so i'm focusing in on 2006 right now that would have been scorsese as the winner Hmm. all the big oscar movies of 2006 since it was mostly uh scorsese's coming home party then everybody else seems to be a british filmmaker too and that's still throwing me off this is another thing where i i want to be time conscious here but i also know that i can get it if i just think enough similar to like what mike was saying earlier um goodness gracious i am going to be very frustrated with myself when i hear this 
there's obviously a lot of Hollywood directors right now who have come from acting careers. None of the ones I'm thinking of would have been in contention for any sort of Oscars. Uh, this name is just not coming to me. If I knew the movies that he had done, I'm sure I would get it immediately. Right now, it's just it's just not coming to me. Instead of a better guess, well, I don't want to say something I know is wrong. Um, goodness. 2006. <laughs> No, I'm still coming up blank. I'm sure I'm going to remember this scene from the documentary, too, as soon as I hear it. And no, I'm really just coming up completely, totally blank. I'm sure I'll see his face as an actor immediately. And unfortunately, I do know that Bill Paxton directed a movie in 2001. I don't believe it was nominated for any Oscars, but I guess that would be a, a pretty good reason why he hasn't made a movie since then. I'll say Bill Paxton. All right. So um, Mike was fairly certain thinking of exactly the right person. Have you remembered his name? Yes, I did. Yes, I remember. That was the cry of anguish. It's Todd Fields. Oh. So if you had said that, actually, it would have been um, one of many episodes in which that S has made a key difference because his name is, in fact, Todd Field. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. Okay. (laughs) Yes, the films he directed were In the Bedroom and Little Children. Mm. And and actually, as Jack began to speak, and he said, directed in 2001, and I said, in the bedroom, of course. But So, uh, Yogesh, would you have not accepted Fields? Yeah, no, as in as in many prior episodes, um, yeah, titles and names, well, yeah, so title lefty word for word exact, in terms of names, there's a little leeway in vowel sounds, but adding a consonant sound would make it wrong. Okay, well, then I feel better. <laughs> All right, so that does, in fact, well, it seals the the, um, first place because Tucker and Mike are very close, but they're going to be on the same side of this last question. It can still decide second place, though. So between Tucker and Jack, whichever one gets this right will have second place. So this goes to Tucker and Mike now trying to steal from Jack. This flick doesn't just rebel against or even disregard standards of taste and art. In the universe inhabited by X, such things as standards and responsibility have never been heard of. It is this lunar purity which largely imparts to the film its classic stature. Like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and a very few others, it will remain as an artifact in years to come to which scholars and searchers for truth can turn and say, this was trash. So spoke Lester Bangs about what 1964 movie billed as the first monster musical and produced and directed by Ray Dennis Steckler, who also starred under the name Cash Flag, filmed at The Pike, a now-demolished amusement zone in Long Beach, California, and sometimes released with a gimmick called Hallucinogenic Hypnovision. It features striking cinematography by a crew that included two Hungarian emigres who would go on to become prominent Hollywood DPs, Laszlo Kovacs and future Oscar winner Vilmos Sigmund. And yes, you must give the word for word exact title by which it is best known well this has to be a mystery science theater movie right i don't know uh did they did mystery science theater so yogesh you said this was a horror musical the first monster musical monster musical so did mst3k ever do a musical uh, there were definitely musical segments from movies in a lot of their episodes. I don't know enough of them necessarily well enough to pick one apart. I know a bunch of the titles, but I can't necessarily match them to the movies to know which one was a musical or not. So again, I, I'm trying to think by year here a little bit. Definitely California-based helps. I think that that's something that, if not stated outright, is pretty heavily implied. Um, so that could be helpful. So Lester... Okay, Lester Bangs gave a review of this, and 
Yogesh, in your in your quote from Lester Bangs, did you use the phrase lunar purity as L-U-N-A-R? L-U-N-A-R, yes. Okay. So I don't know if that's an allusion to the theme uh, that it is somebody from space. Oh, yeah. I, so go ahead. I wouldn't necessarily call it a monster movie necessarily, but I do think Santa Claus Conquers the Martians is from 1964. I don't know if that gets us anywhere. I'm just trying to think of very, very bad movies I know from the era that might have a musical component right. and have some sort of, you know, lunar or outer space component also. Again, another possibility could be werewolves. Outside of that, yeah. I don't I don't know if the musical thing is likely to help me because I'm really, really bad at remembering songs. Uh, right. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors is around that time, 63, 64, <laughs> but I think that that was... If I'm not mistaken, that was first a play and then filmed as a movie. And the movie, the, so um, you said that this was directed by Steckler Yogesh. Yes. And I'm pretty sure the original, the early uh, Little Shop of Horrors was Roger Corman. Uh, so we'll kick that out. Also, I think that was not that bad, if I remember right. No, no, it certainly okay. wasn't. It was, it was, it, it was fun. And um, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't say, well, yeah, I guess you could say monster musical. The plant is, a, is an alien. Mm-hmm. But yeah, let's rule that out. So we have Santa Claus conquers the Martians. And I really, one of the things we should keep in mind is that Yogesh asks us to get the title exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, if it's yeah. one of those where it has a complicated title, I think the title is The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies is another film from that time that would have been really bad. I don't know if that had any sort of musical or moon component at all, but that's certainly what I think of when the hint is you have to get the exact title. You're right. You're right. And I think I know Santa Claus Conquers the Martians has been described as one of the worst movies ever made. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I get the impression that the second one, again, knowing nothing more about it, Mm -hmm. I get the sense that it was kind of set up as camp, Mm -hmm. as in, you know, a wink toward. um, Honestly, I would be fine with either of those choices because I don't have anything better. Okay. Is it a 50-50 for you, or did you feel better more about one than the other? Simply because I know that Santa Claus Conquers the Martians is regarded as one of the worst movies of all time. Although Lester Banks called a lot of stuff trash, including some (laughs) stuff that wasn't necessarily that bad. But um, it seems to me that Yogesh citing Lester Bangs, I don't think that Lester Bangs was being iconoclastic. I think he was probably fitting the critical mainstream on this piece of culture. So I guess I would lean toward Santa Claus, but it's more of a 5248. All right. um, I'm not really stronger in any direction than the others, so let's lock in with Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. All right, you're locking in Santa Claus Conquers the Martians? Yeah. All right. Jack? All right. So Santa Claus Conquers the Martians was not a musical. Eh. And going through the ranks of monster musicals I know, obviously, like Little Shop of Horrors is at the top. There's also Phantom of the Mall, which is a weird, like, new age. Forget if it's, like, heavy metal or whatnot, but I'm pretty sure that's a 80s movie, and it wouldn't have been filmed at some place called an amusement center, was it, Yogesh? How did you phrase that exactly? Amusement zone. Yeah, an amusement zone. It wouldn't be that. So I was... As Mike and Tucker were discussing, I was going through the ranks of Mr. Science Theater movies to see which ones. And I think, actually, Tucker was on the right track. 
So now I have to try to get that title exactly right. So I'm going to go with the incredibly strange teenagers who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. So, um, Tucker, what was it you said when you said that title? I said the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. So I think it was just a one word difference. Right. If you had locked that in, that one word might have made the difference between second and third place. And in fact, it does make the difference because Tucker's version is correct. And so Jack (laughs) does not steal second place from him. Uh, Yeah, and if you had locked that in, you would have sealed it up entirely. But you opened up a window for Jack to take second place away from you. And he unfortunately did not come through that window. So we end on Mike at 28.0, Tucker 25.1, Jack 20.0. Actually, wait, my math was off. Actually, if he had gotten that, you would have been tied, and your tiebreaker point would have given you second place, Tucker. (laughs) (laughs) That one question from the first round made all the difference, uh, just as we all expected. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been our first actual breaking of a tie with the tiebreaker. So uh, (laughs) just one word away from that. Uh Okay, so thank you all. And now we will end on giving you each just a final chance to say anything you want, you know, about the game, about the opponents, about anything in the world at large. It's up to you. As long as it's not too long or too offensive, it'll be kept in. And uh, we'll go in reverse order of scores as the lowest scoring player has the last word. So we'll begin with Mike. Okay, I mentioned at the outset, I'm an American who's lived in Mexico now for uh, over 20 years. And so all of my participation in trivia is remote and largely disconnected. I really appreciate this opportunity to enjoy what I have not been able to participate in for quite a while, which is live trivia played with a smart host and smart people and really enjoyable, fun competition complete with cries of joy and cries of anguish. So Yogesh, thank you very much for the invitation. Tucker and Jack, thanks so much for playing along. All right. Now the second place player, Tucker. I don't know if I'll be able to make this sound as classy as Mike just did there, but I did really have a great time. So thanks to Yogesh, Jack and Mike, you guys were uh, wonderful opponents and a lot of fun to play with too. So uh, just a really great time. Love to do it again sometime, but uh, for now, thanks again to everybody. All right. And Jack. Yeah. Thank you, Yogesh, for inviting me. Thanks, Mike and Tucker, for uh, having a good time playing the the questions. If anybody's ever in San Jose, California on 8 o'clock on a Wednesday, feel free to come down to O'Flaherty's Tavern or O'Flaherty's Irish Pub to play uh, my pub trivia, Skull Vikings, and wash your hands out there. (laughs) All right. Are those two things uh, related? No. (laughs) Both both very important, though. (laughs) Not related, but important. All right, so I apologize for this running a little long because of the technical difficulty we had. I apologize for some of the questions being skewed a little too hard. Uh, so no. quick, what were the categories exactly? I'm pretty sure I know what mine were, but what were Mike and Tucker's? Uh, do you guys want to reveal yours? or? Oh, um, yeah, that's fine. Oh, yeah. Um, so Tucker's were baseball and 21st century cinema and alternative rock. Okay. And Mike, also baseball and neuroscience slash molecular biology, and basically older film, which I interpreted as more classic Hollywood-oriented. Yeah, and then Jack's were video games, mythology, and bad movies. Bad (laughs) movies? Ah, okay. Yeah, so so two of you had uh, baseball, and all three of you had something film-related, so there was a a bit of a, a collision of expertise there.
But, but Yogesh, again, uh, really, uh, uh, my compliments, I'm sure Jack and Tucker's as well, on your smithing of the questions, quite often looking for ways to massage the questions so that multiple fields of interest were represented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, one yeah. other thing that, sorry if uh, you don't mind me interrupting here, uh, that I really like about this podcast, both in playing and listening, is that the questions are hard. I like a lot of other trivia podcasts too, but this one is good specifically because it's so challenging. Definitely, you know, having multiple ways in makes it more fun, but I don't think that this would necessarily be a better podcast if you tone down the difficulty of the questions a lot. Like I, I do enjoy this because it's one of the few trivia podcasts I can hear that gets deep into a subject. Okay, good. That that's a good feedback, actually. Yeah, because I was worried that it was, you know, getting a little too hard there. But yeah, I'm glad to hear that you uh, you think that. Well, and also I think we, if we didn't necessarily get to correct answers, we definitely showed off like how you could get to correct answers from mm-hmm. not having a lot of knowledge in things and working together with a team to try to get to correct answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. You did get you even the ones you didn't get. You did get very close on a lot of them, and and did yeah show off a lot of knowledge and and a lot of good teamwork. So um, yeah. And also, I, I think you're smithing. I, I think one example was the uh, Billy Corgan question, which we didn't get right. But when the answer was given, it was oh yes, and that type of uh, you know not you either know it or you don't, but you know that there's a path to the question and. There's even, I mean, even with that question, getting it wrong, there was a certain satisfaction of getting close. Right. Yeah. In one of the early episodes, I think uh, Amanda Walker says after an answer, it is literally painful how much sense that answer makes. (laughs) (laughs) And I always think of that as like, yeah, that's kind of the feeling I'm going for. If you don't get it, it should physically pain you how you could have gotten it. Right. And I I think your wronger box series is also in that vein, where quite often it's a kind of a a facepalm when you see the answer. (laughs) This has been episode 10 of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Rauth. Thanks for listening.